It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I am Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Now, today is one of them days that we know the Lord has made. And we're going to rejoice and be glad in it because I have here, all Count Time guests are very, very special. But I have a true living legend sitting before me and before us who has one of the most powerful stories to tell and share. His story goes back so far. His dad is part of this story. And this one and only Mr. A.P. Turo. Welcome to Count Time. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I hope that I can uh, give your audience some of the kind of information that I think might inspire them to go on and to continue the work that so many of us have started many years ago. Uh, I'm a product of New Orleans. I grew up in the Creole neighborhood of the Seventh Ward. And I'm one of six children. My father was one of 12 children, and my mother was one of 10 children. My father was A.P. Turo Sr., whose father was um, a contractor and a carpenter, and they lived uh, in the Marigny, near the riverfront, near the French market, and uh, he was born in 1899. 18, A.P. Turo, born in 1899. Eight, he was born in 1899, and he was the third to the last child in that family. Uh, he had uh, six brothers and six, he had six brothers, five brothers. He was one of six, six boys and six girls. His father uh, left the family when he was a teenager and went to New York to live with his mother and his stepbrothers, and the family had to fend for themselves. My father was uh, very industrious and very smart. And although his older brothers were in the construction business, he did not like construction work. He wanted to go to school and finish high school. There was no black high school in New Orleans at that time. So he got a job as a strike breaker on the Illinois Central Railroad, went to Chicago, eventually went to New York, and ended up in Washington, D.C where he got a job in the law library that serves the Supreme Court as a clerk. He was still a teenager, and he, he enrolled in Dunbar High School, but because he had to work during the day, he didn't finish high school until he was 21 years old. Hold on, now, hold on. So he went and got a job in a law library at a, as a teenager? He had taken a civil service exam before he left New Orleans because somebody had said to him, they're giving exams for jobs. <clears throat> and he took this exam. And that he never heard what happened to his test results until he got to New York. The, the examining board had sent him a letter in New Orleans that he had made a very high score. And so his mother sent it to his older brother in New York where he was living. And they had offered him a job in Washington, D.C., in the law library, which served the Supreme Court. He worked there uh, for several years. So as a teenager, they offered him a job? Oh, yes, they offered him a job. And, uh, and, of course, he accepted it. And he was a researcher. You know, when he graduated from, uh, from Howard University Law School, he got an award for having one of the highest grades in, in law, legal research. 
So, and he was, uh, he was a meticulous uh, person with details, and he always wanted everything to be precisely accurate. Although he was very calm and quiet-spoken, he was very smart. And, uh, but he was, a, he was a guy who didn't have any ego, he was self-effacing, and he just was easy to get along with. That's, that's where you get it from then. Well, I get some of that from him. My mother, on the other hand, was uh, a Dejwa. Her family, uh, the Dejwas were, uh, she was a pharmacist. She had been to Howard University. Her father, two of her uncles, two of her brothers had gone to pharmacy school the older uh, relatives went to pharmacy school during Reconstruction because in New Orleans during Reconstruction there was a school of pharmacy, law, and medicine at University of New Orleans and at Strait, which became Dillard University. Okay. And so my mother's family, uh, they were well off. They had two drugstores. My grandfather, uh, Joseph Jules Desjois, was one of the founding members of the Louisiana Life Insurance Company with his cousins. You're talking about in 1860s and 70s? No, this, this was in the, in the, in the early, I, I would say uh, in the 1880s and 90s. Okay, 1880s and 90s, because Reconstruction was from like 1867 yeah. to eight, for 12 years it lasted. But it was the turn of the century. And so my mother went away to Talladega Boarding School, which was a high school for black and brown men, boys and girls, because there was no high school in New Orleans. Wait, wait that's in Florida? No, it was in Alabama, to, uh, uh, to, to, not Tuskegee, uh, Talladega High School. Yeah, okay. And now it's Talladega College. So they, your mom had to go way to Alabama. Well, there were no high schools in New to Orleans. Go to, to, to go to high school with her older brother. Remember that there were very few black high schools in the Deep South for, for black kids to go to. Public education in New Orleans stopped at the eighth grade, and many people only went to fourth or fifth grade. Mm. And uh, you know, even after we got Southern and Dillard University, Southern and Grambling University as state schools, they never had graduate programs. So we could never have doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, professional people to serve our communities. We had to, to use white people to provide those services to us. The history is fabulous and most people don't understand it. And many of the people from Louisiana went away to school. Black men and women went to Howard or they went to Meharry or they went to Morehouse because there were no graduate schools in Louisiana until the NAACP and the black law force, the black lawyers in the country started suing the white state universities like LSU or University of Alabama or University of Georgia to admit blacks into the white universities for graduate schools. And then, of course, the state legislatures in those states started putting graduate programs in the black state universities. That's how Southern University got its law school, to keep blacks out of the white law schools. But Thurgood Marshall 
and, and Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the director of the NAACP, who died young and passed the mantle on to Thurgood Marshall, said, if we start suing the white state universities, and this would be probably in the, in the 50s, you don't think they're going to start separate medical schools, separate dental schools, separate law schools. Well, they did law schools, but they didn't start separate medical schools, dental schools, schools of architecture and all of that. I mean, look, some of the professions we never had access to. Why do you think we don't have many black people who have a history of being architects? Because there were no schools of architecture, and many of them, even if they applied, to the schools in the North were so busy serving other people they weren't taking blacks. So we had to challenge the barriers and, and take legal action, litigate, litigate, sue for admission, and not just demonstrate, but litigate. And we don't have that today. We demonstrate, but how many people are litigating cases that need to be litigated? And that's one of the things, and I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a civil, uh, civil rights activist. I say demonstrations are great, but look at all the black lawyers we have. Why aren't we litigating more cases? Oh, so anyway, long story short, the history of Louisiana. You know, Abraham Lincoln wanted Louisiana to be a model state to show the other southern states after the Confederate uh, war, how to reconstruct themselves as legitimate states with freedom and respecting the new civil rights acts that were passed to give black citizenship voting rights and, and, and protection by the government from, the, you know, from, from harassment. But Lincoln was killed. President Johnson came in. Lincoln said none of the Confederate leaders could come back and be political. Johnson pardoned all of them, and they came back. Uh -huh. They came back in great force, and that's when they put all the monuments up facing the South, intimidating blacks, organizing the Klan, organizing the, the uh, intimidation uh, organizations like the white Knights of the White Camellia that we had in, in Louisiana. We had our own brand of Ku Klux Klan, you know. So it was a terrible time, but anyway, History goes on. So I grew up in New Orleans. Of course, everything was totally segregated. I spent a lot of time coming back and forth with my dad to Baton Rouge because he was working with the people in Baton Rouge who had Southern University and helping Southern University and Dr. Clark stay out of the political fray so that the state legislature wouldn't punish him and punish Southern. So his first case at Southern was Charles Hatfield in, in 1945. 1945, his first civil rights case, Charlie Hatfield had come back from World War II and he had been a graduate at Xavier. And he said, I wanna go to LSU Law School. So my dad said, okay, we'll start, we'll start legal action. And he filed the case, the state legislature, LSU was angry, the state legislature was intimidated, and they started busily working yes. to start a school at oh, Southern okay. Law School. And they said, 
it's Southern's fault they don't have a law school. <laughs> it's not our fault. Why didn't Southern have a law school? So they over, they overnight sort of started a law school, but the, the, the vitriol and the intimidation of Charlie Hatfield was so strong wherever he was, whether it was in Baton Rouge or New Orleans, and a lot of it happened in New Orleans, my father withdrew the legal action because he was afraid Charlie Hatfield would get killed. Now Charlie Hatfield tried for many years to regain his, his status to go to LSU, but he never did. But he was, a, because of what he did, we have Southern University Law School starting programs in the 40s way before Dutch Moriel and Robert Carter and, and, and other people came to LSU in the 50s. So we have periods where a whole decade would go by before you could find someone who was bold enough to say, I want to be a plaintiff. Now, Roy Wilson came a little bit after Charlie Hatfield, and Roy Wilson was also uh, a young man who had been in the war and had come back. I'm not sure if he went to Grambling or Southern, but I remember I was younger at the time. I remember meeting him, he was a very tall, very handsome man, and very determined to go to LSU. He was from northern Louisiana. He was the 19th child in his family. The 19th? 19th. Can you imagine that? <laughs> 19th? 19th child in his family. He wanted to be somebody like And he was, he was so determined, and his case went through, and he was the first black to enter law school at, South, at, at LSU. Now, what's that name again? His name was uh, Roy Wilson. He was the first to enter yes. law school at LSU. Yes, but the lawyers at LSU conferred with the, with the leadership at LSU and they found out that he had had a dishonorable discharge from the army. Something as insignificant as he had, what I understand, and I didn't see the actual report, but that he had gotten into some kind of brawl with someone, probably a white officer or a white soldier, and he was uh, dishonorably discharged. Now, you can't tell me that there weren't people at LSU who had maybe similar circumstances, right? After the war. No, 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 not the good ones. So they expelled him from the law school. And you know what? He disappeared. He was so embarrassed, he disappeared. And I remember asking the NAACP many years later, what ever happened to Roy Wilson? And they said, we don't know. And I often wondered what happened to him. I, I was young at the time, but I, I remember him because he was impressive. He was very impressive, quiet spoken. He, must have, he looked like a, a basketball player. He was 6'4", 6'5", always dressed shirt and tie, neat as a pin. And some people said he went to California. But you know, it's embarrassing when you have this interest to do something and your family is very proud of you and, and, and you know that you're going to do a good job and then you become embarrassed because of some minor incident that lots of people do have problems with. That should not have had anything to do with LSU, but he was discharged.
So, so they, let, they let him in and kicked it right out. Well, the, look, what, right. when I sued LSU, thank God they kicked me out. <laughs> Because I was ready to leave. <laughs> I was ready to leave. And because they kicked me out, it saved me. And, and, and you know that story, but I'll repeat it again. You, know, I got, we get, you got to tell that story. We want that, that story we want to get to. Because it was so bad. It was so bad for me. And I wasn't anticipating that degree of hostility. I just was not expecting people, the adults, the leadership, the instructors, and then the students. The idea was, uh, my, my, my case in the undergraduate school was the first challenge to a formerly all-white state southern university in the country. So your, your dad used you as a guinea pig? You know, my, my dad didn't have anything to he, do with he that. He did that? That was me. Oh, you were, I, you, know, you my, were bold, huh? Well, <laughs> you know, it just, it just seemed so natural. You know, my dad never said to me, I want you to do this. So I, people think and have said many times, your dad recruited you and filed your case and all of that. I said, no, it didn't happen that way. It did not happen that way. I'll tell you how it happened. Okay, then. All right. I'm one of six kids, right? right. I had a sister at Xavier, <clears throat> and I had younger sisters coming behind me. My father never worked for money. Now, he came from a poor family, and he always helped his mom and his other siblings when his father left and all of that. We lived well. We didn't live in a trophy house. We never had a trophy car. We were comfortable. My mother's family had resources. And my mother worked in her family's drugstore for years until my last two sisters were born, twins, because her father and her brother died very uh, uh, quickly after she got uh, out of uh, pharmacy school. And she had to support her family. So my mother worked from 9 until 9 at night in the drugstore to support the family while she was having six children. But both families, two both families. Yes, yes, and my dad was working. My, my father used to take, take my mother up to the drugstore with us in the car, pick up my grandmother, bring her back. Then at night, by nine o'clock at night, take my grandmother, put us in pajamas, put us in the car, go back uptown, get my mother, and bring her back home. My mother would stop. We'd get poor boys, and we'd eat poor boys coming home at nine o'clock. Nine o'clock at night. <laughs> you still, you look like a poor boy. You didn't put on no weeds yet. <laughs> so, you know, people think, oh, you must have been rich. Your mama was a pharmacist, and your father was a lawyer. I said, yes, but you don't understand. People had to work. And you know, people weren't making a whole lot of money anyway. Now, my, my mother's family did have money, but it doesn't mean all the money went to her or came to us. She had younger brothers and sisters to support. But let, th that's another whole story. But when I was in high school... And what I, high school you attended? I went to Clark High School, whose name for Joseph Clark, the, f the first president at Southern. Oh, okay. And I didn't know that. Right. And you know, we don't teach our history. Nobody ever told me that. All the years that we went to Clark, I went to Clark. I said, who, who, well, he was Felton Clark's father. So anyway, long story short, I went to Clark. Now, at that time in the 50s, the black schools were so crowded 
that I went to school on the platoon system. I went from 7 in the morning until noon. Then the whole school emptied out, and the next shift for black kids would come from noon until 5 o'clock. I never heard that. Only in New Orleans. <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> Only in New Orleans. We didn't get buses. There were kids coming from, Clark is in, almost in the French Quarter. It's in the Treme. There were kids coming from the Ninth Ward. They had to be there at 7 o'clock in the morning on public buses. They had to pay their own bus fare, and they had to get there, be in class for 7 o'clock. I always took the morning shift because I, I could work in the afternoon. I almost had a full-time job working after school. We would pass white schools that were half-filled and watch them bringing white kids to the white schools from different neighborhoods in buses that were half-filled. And we were trugging, walking, running, driving, riding bicycles and everything to get to school for 7 o'clock in the morning. Now how far did you live from school? I, I lived about 20, 20 minutes on a bike, you know. 20 minutes on a bike? On a bike. But there were kids from the 7th Ward who had to take two buses to get to school. Now where was Clark located? It on uh, Bayou Road, near, near the Treme, right near, near uh, uh, Loy Armstrong Park. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's still there. Now, now it's Mars Jeff, but they've changed the name several times. But those were days that were very difficult. But long story short, so my sister's at Xavier. She's two years ahead of me. So I said to my dad, when I'm a junior, I said, you know, uh, I just want to know what you can afford when I get ready to go to college. You know, how much, you know, how much money you got? <laughs> so he said, look, you can go anywhere you want to go. We make that work. You can go to Howard, you can go to Harvard, you can go anywhere you want to go. So I said, well, I'll think about it. I wanted something different. I really did. I could have gone to Xavier, I could have gone to Dillard. I could have walked to Dillard almost, you know. And I knew Dr. Denton, his family, who was president, because one of his sons, Ben Albert, was my buddy. You know, we were the same age, so I go play on Dillard's, Dillard's campus all the time. And I loved all of that. But I just wanted... I wanted to be in a competitive, I wanted to compete with white kids because I wanted to know that I could do what they could do. And if they're going to LSU, why can't I go to LSU? And if they're getting good courses and good jobs, then I can compete with them. So I, it just made sense. Nobody, nobody's told you that. You, you, that's your thought. Yeah, but, uh, well, but I used to come with my dad oh, when he yeah. would be driving to, to talk to Johnny Jones and, and, and all the people the in Baton Rouge. And he would always drive through LSU's campus. He'd say, look at this place, man. It's a city unto itself. And then we go to Southern, have to cross over the railroad tracks. <laughs> and the ditches on the side of, because I had a friend who was at Southern, Walter King, and he drove, his, his father was in construction, and he had a big Buick. He drove it into the ditch full of students. <laughs> but I had friends at Southern and all that, so I was in and out of Southern. Southern was not what it is today in the 50s. And LSU was big time, still big time. Southern's great too now, but it wasn't like it was then. So you're talking about the, the beauty of the campus, well, the buildings? Well, it was, it, look, Separate but equal, when my father argued the case of law schools at Southern or law schools at LSU, the budget for Southern in that year was $2 million. The budget for LSU was like $24 million. <laughs> That's separate and equal, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. So, I mean, figure out if you're getting a pittance 
then you don't have much. But my dad used to say, look at this, this is a city unto itself. LSU is an institution that's embedded into the prosperity of Baton Rouge. So I, I was like, oh, wow, this is, a, this is some place, you know? <laughs> so you ride through the beautiful sight to see, yeah? And off to Southern. So anyway, so I said, well, you know what? I, I think I could do that. Now, my dad was so easy. My dad never said no to me. I used to ask for a lot of crazy stuff, and he never said no. So I, he, I, he didn't say, boy, you know what you get yourself into? So I said to him, Dad, I think I'd go to LSU. You know what he said? Okay. That was it. That was it. <laughs> he didn't lecture. That was it. That was it. He didn't lecture me. So I said, do you think that's possible? Oh, we can make that happen. <laughs> that's what he told you. That was it. That was it. But at the time, now, you, but you knew. At the time, he had gotten Dutch Moriel into the law school. He had gotten Lutro Payne into the graduate school of education. He had gotten another woman uh, into the school of social work. So there were black kids on camp, oh, people, but yeah. they were adults. Now they were graduate school. So, so your dad was the one who got all these, all of. Well, all LSU these. made him sue each graduate school separately. He had thirteen legal cases, against suits LSU. against LSU, thirteen cases. Now, so when he said to me, "Oh yeah, we can make that happen," so I went back to my high school guidance counselor, <laughs> and and. He said, okay, uh, we're going to start applying for colleges. Uh, so he said, oh, uh, I see somebody down here has LSU. <laughs> who, you know what he said? Who is the clown in this class? <laughs> so I raised my hand. <laughs> so I walked up to the desk quietly and I said, I'm not a clown. I am going to LSU. He said, you can't go there. And I said, why? He said, because it's segregated. I said, but when I go, it's not going to be segregated. <laughs> not, not who told you that? <laughs> so he said, well, how, how's that going to work? I said, my dad told me I could go there, and I'm going there. I did not apply to any other colleges. I applied to LSU. I never applied to Xavier or Dillard or any place else. Now, now, now who, who, who said, who was the clown? The clown who, who, who said that? Now, I got to... That was my guidance counselor. He was a nice man. Oh, okay. What was his name? <laughs> Mr. Blakely. <laughs> <laughs> he, and he was the football coach. Too. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he, he was nice. Yeah. And, you know, he said, and he said, okay. He said, I respect that. He said, I respect that. But if you have a problem, you know, we can apply to other places. We're not having a problem. Okay. It's going to work. You know who my dad is? It's going to work. And, and I mean, look, if, if, I, if there were no other blacks there, I would have said, well, that, that could be a problem. I mean, I wasn't stupid, you know. But I saw all these other blacks there, and I figured, why not? Somebody. Now, what, what, what year was that? 1953. 53? 53. That was 70 years ago, man. That, that's the year of the bus boycott. That, 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 no, I don't think. I think it was, I think the bus boycott was before that or, or after. I'm not that, sure. Right no, no, it was probably after. Okay. It was probably 54 or 56 or so, okay. somewhere like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't 53 because I used to come into town, walk down Highland Road to Terrace Avenue where Dr. Butler was. And Dr. Butler was a friend of my family, so I'd go so, eat. Dr. Leo Butler. Yeah, I used to eat dinner there. And so they'd say, well, we're taking care of you. I said, yeah, but you know, I still got to go back there. I got to go back to that campus. Because I could walk to terrorists. Well, anyway, so, so my father filed. But my father had a law partner 
who, who was, uh, his name was uh, Antoine Marcel Trudeau. The same letters as my last name, but Trudeau, T-R-U-D-E-A-U. So everybody thought that was my daddy's son because it looked like the same name, but it wasn't. And so Marcel, he became my lawyer. My dad was not my lawyer in that case. My, my dad was a friend of, the, you know, friend of the plaintiff, but Marcel Trudeau was the one who argued the case in the court with uh, uh, Judge Kelly Wright. And I went to one deposition uh, with my mom, and, and there's a picture of the in the Daily Reveille, and I'll show you the picture. I have some pictures to give oh, you, too. Oh, no, that's going to be great. I'm sitting in the registrar's office. But uh, when I went to the deposition, my mom and I went, my dad went, we sat in, in the room, and Marcel argued, you know, the lawyer thing. And uh, Leander Perez, who was from Plaquemines Parish, she was probably one of the most horrendous scallywags of Confederate hatred. Uh, uh, of blacks, and uh, he always reminded me of Colonel Sanders. He was a good-looking man. He was almost as brown as I am, okay. but he had thick gray hair. He wore black tie like Colonel Sanders, and he always wore beige suits and a straw hat. Very handsome man, but boy, he was a radical, and he owned a lot of that offshore oil stuff and made a whole lot of money and people in Plaquemines Parish, it's below Louisiana, New Orleans, you know, terrible reputation. But anyway, he was the lead lawyer fellow, shoot. I don't know, like 15 or 16 young white lawyers volunteered pro bono to be on the case with him. They volunteered. So I said to my dad, oh, wow, that's, that's something. They, you know, all these, he said, look, if you have 15 people, 16 lawyers, they're going to be arguing and fussing about this, that, and the other. They're only there to have their names on the docket to say, look what I did, and oh, to get okay. publicity for themselves. Uh, he right. said, all you need is one good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Just one good one. <laughs> okay, yeah. So anyway, when, when Judge Kelly Wright called Leander Perez to start his oral question, whatever, presentation, he walked over. It wasn't in a court courtroom. It w was in like an office room, but Judge Skellerat was sitting higher than the rest of us. And he walked over to me and he pointed to me and he said, here sits the only ungrateful Negro. <laughs> oh, Lord. In the state of Louisiana. Oh, in the state of Louisiana. You know, people with these good white folk to be doing. Because grambling or Southern's not good enough for him. He wants to go to LSU. And I looked at that man and I said to myself, you rotten, dirty dog. <laughs> you, you, you're just ungrateful, that's all. You're ungrateful just... Negro. <laughs> Negro. I had never been called a Negro before. Uh, Negro. Negro. Uh, you know, that's, that's just short of calling you a nigger, right? Yeah, just ungrateful. Just yeah, ungrateful, ungrateful Negro. So I said to that. my dad, I want to tell you something. <laughs> I am never going back to any more depositions <laughs> because if I'm not there, they won't act that way. And, oh, they, and they're not going to make me, demean me and make, crush my enthusiasm. Because we're gonna win this case, okay. so I'm not going. Yeah, the more you go to that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Then they bombard you. you. I right. become the enemy, and 
And then you worry about all that. You worry about, well, what does this mean? Are all the people going to be like that to me? And, and I didn't think I was going to have any trouble. But, but you, you're a young man. You're a teenager. Yeah, yeah, but see, I had lived with all these lawyers and listening to these things and working in my dad's office and going to meetings. My dad used to take me on all these trips all up in the country with people who were having problems. And my father had me work in his office and answer the phone. And you know, you get people who were calling because their kids had been taken away from them, you know, because they owed debts for, for tenant farmers and stuff like that. So I, I had been around a whole lot of stuff. And I, I used to, when I was in high school, in college, I used to go pick up Thurgood Marshall and them from, from the airport because they had to come down to the uh, uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to argue all these cases. And I used to hear all these things. Man, I had, I, like, and I said, I don't want to be a lawyer, you know, but I just enjoyed being with these men and women that were all over the country making all of these cases and decisions. Put their and, life on the line. Yeah, and putting their life on the line. And you know what? When they came to Louisiana, they knew that they had to get out as soon as they could safely. So anyway, they avoided a whole lot of publicity in the black press as well. But anyway, so I, I'm not going back to depositions. It, this can go on. So this case went on. School had started. Colleges had opened. And I still was not admitted. So this a, few, is, a, a few weeks. This, this, this is, August, this September. is September. Okay. okay, September. What year that was, 53? 1953. Okay. So we, we had been to a conference and we went to New York and, and we had to get back. And, and uh, so I said to Dad, school's starting next week. When am I going to go? You know, I don't want to be late. I, I may have enough trouble. I certainly don't want to be coming in classes late because you know what they're going to say. You know, you can't come in here late and all of that. So he said, well, it's not us. He said, it's, it's the process. And they keep filing all these motions and all this sort of thing. So anyway, I was two or three weeks before I could get in. And the first day that my parents said, okay, you're going to school tomorrow. And we loaded up my dad's little raggedy Ford. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't think, don't have people think AP Turo had a raggedy car. My father had a little black raggedy Ford because my father drove like a madman. <laughs> <laughs> it was a black strip down for it. My father didn't care about cars and all of that. He said a car is nothing but to take and bring you. <laughs> and we lived on all these raggedy streets in New Orleans. <laughs> Our street was never paved. It's still not paved. Still not. Still not paved. So anyway, my father would rag a car and he always took his car to a black guy who lived on the corner of our neighborhood who had a little shop in the lot next door. And he was a mechanic, and he'd always fix my dad's car. He said, look, you don't need these extra parts. <laughs> I'd say, that's, that's, why it keeps, that's why it keeps breaking down. Take it to the Ford dealer. He said, the Ford dealers are white. <laughs> and one time, we made him buy a new car, and he bought a pigeon blue car. He had never had a colored car in his life. It was bright blue. <laughs> He was fun, though, because my dad, he, 
I don't care what color it is, you all pick a color. <laughs> we kept saying, Dad, why don't you buy a nice car? It had no air conditioning, the only thing it had was the radio. And all it was was the news, the news. I said, can't you play some music? You're not going to learn anything from the music. <laughs> Listen to the news. <laughs> you know what's going on around you. Yeah? My, my dad was, a, and we used to drive all over the state and so forth and so on. But anyway, so uh, loaded up the car. All the stuff you need, your pillow, your typewriter, all your suitcases and all. We got to LSU, we drove up to wherever the president's office was, near the tower. And standing outside was the president, and that was uh, Middleton. Oh. Yeah, General, General, General Middleton. General Middleton. Okay. And the, the treasurer, no, the, the uh, registrar, whoever he was, and uh, two state patrolmen. Like, what we gonna do, shoot us? <laughs> and they're standing there like this. So my dad got out of the car, and he's, my, my dad was always polite. <laughs> Good morning, sirs. Good morning, sirs. We're here, you know, to, said, well, you can't do it today. We don't have the court order. It didn't come. He was lying. We never got it. So my dad said, well, let me call Judge Skelly Wright. To my dad called Skelly, right? Now you didn't have, you didn't, we didn't know had cell phone, you no. Know cell phone. So you had to go in the office, or whatever. So Skelly said, "Well, it, it was sent." He said, "Look, come back and we'll, we'll make sure they get a copy." You know, two days later we went back and they admitted me. Okay. They put me in the in the stadium, the old stadium, which was only five stories high. I, the LSU football stadium. Yeah, it was five stories high. That was it. And uh, so, right by Mike's uh, cage. My entrance was right by Mike's cage. And I thought, what kind of place is this where they keep a, a t <laughs> in this cage like this? And it was small. It was, it was terrible. A little pool for him to cool himself off in. And anyway, so uh, I go upstairs and it 30 kids lined up at my door, white, white kids, boys. And then there were these guys who were the cadet, uh, the student oh, cadet ROTC, officers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I said, what is this all? Oh, you got to be in the Air Force. No, you got to be in the, in the Army or the Air Force. I said, well, I choose the Air Force. I'm going to be marching all around. <laughs> I didn't come to school to be in the Army. <laughs> <laughs> but but see, they, they, they had to deal with the federal government. You know, Middleton served in, 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 in the Army as an advisor. He wasn't a military man, but he was, he was a management guy, and he did very well. That's where he got the, the general from. He was a lieutenant general, and, and he served in the European uh, war, war force there. And, and he did very well, and he, he, he got a lot of uh, uh, recognition from and he came back here. And so he, you know, you, these state schools could apply and get money from the federal government to have ROTC. And if you had to go to war, you could pull up the ROTC people to fill the ranks in. And I was doing it. I mean, not me, I'm going to go, I'll AWOL. So anyway. <laughs> He's not even in the military. <laughs> oh, God, no, I didn't like that. I'm not a war person. Yeah, okay. So these guys were standing outside my door, and they had scissors. And the idea was, they used to do a lot of stupid stuff in those days. Right. Cut all your hair off, then you'd have to go to a barber shop and have your head shaved clean, and then you wear a little beanie, LSU beanie, 
to the football games, and they could tell the freshmen from, and another time you're supposed to go to the football games, and all the freshmen wear pajamas, and I said, I'm doing all that foolishness. <laughs> I came in. It's serious. You know what took me to get it in? And secondly, I'm not going anywhere in the large crowds until I get the feel of who's out there. Because I knew that things happen to people. And, and my dad got involved with a lot of lynchings in different places in this state. He was involved with lynchings too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and I said, well, you can go to those. I'm not going to those. But, but anyway, these guys were out there, and they were having fun. And uh, I thought, well, this is going to be great. They're going to be my buddies, right? They're here cutting off my hair, joking and talking. I, w what I didn't realize, they weren't talking to me. They were talking to each other oh, okay. and joking with each other. Oh. And I thought, well, they're going to be a lot of fun, you know? Oh, yeah. So they did all that. So I said, my parents, go, 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 go home, go home. It's going to be okay. It's going to be good. They, they, they're going to be my friends. They cut all my hair off. And I had, I had hair then. I never saw one of them again. They were upperclassmen. Freshmen couldn't do it. You had to have upperclassmen. So they had come from one or two of the floors below us. Because if you're a freshman, they put you up the highest so you have the longest walk. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. Didn't have the elevator. <laughs> no. And no air conditioning. Okay, then. So anyway, long story short, I had a room for three people. It was much bigger than this. Three, three guys. Double-deckers in a single bed. And then chests and so forth. Down the hall with three large showers. No partitions between them, just shower heads. Toilets and sinks. That sounded like a prison. Well, it was just open. Okay. You know, it was just open. And rough. It was rough. I mean, old construction. So, forth and so, on. so anyway, my parents left, and did the, you have roommates? No. Oh, of course, no. So you had a big suite for yourself. I had a whole suite for myself. <laughs> okay. But the worst part was there were rooms on either side of me, and I had windows like this and here, and the, and there was a room here and a room there, and the windows were close to one another. Those guys would bag on the walls all night. They would put radios on the windowsills. They were going to keep me up. The whole idea was to make me leave. Run me out, keep me up all night, put shit on my doorknob. Literally. Roadkill. I found a dead cat carcass <clears throat> attached to my doorknob. You know what that means. You got a dead cat on the line. I mean, it was just insane. I would go down to take a shower in the morning or brush my teeth or whatever. The guys would be all soaked up in the shower. They'd walk out and go down to the next bathroom down the hall. So I would be left totally alone wherever I was. And the little cadet uh, students who, was, who were sophomores and upperclassmen who had been to military, you know, these white kids go to military schools. They thought they were generals. Fall out, fall in, get your rifle, you know, all that kind of thing. And I thought, don't mess with me. <laughs> I'll do the job, but, but don't start ordering me, you know. Well, they, they didn't bother me. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't say a word. Not even hello, good morning, or anything. So I thought, okay, all right, it'll take a little while, but whatever. I said, but this is banging on the walls at night. This is not good. Well, see, there were three of them in the room and three over here. So there were six of them. They could take turns doing it, but I was there, and they were keeping me up at night, and I couldn't study. So, uh, and who was I going to go to? So I figured, well, let me go to class. Maybe I can make the adults 
will be more civilized. The professors were as bad as the students. And I had a math class that was small, it was like 12 people. And it was in, I think, Boyd Hall or one of them, I don't know. And uh, this older woman was the math teacher. And uh, she said the first day I was there, and see what I did when I, when I started, I would go early to the class. Because I didn't want to have to come in and sit next to somebody and then watch them move away or object. So you just get Now the other thing is a lot of them didn't know who I was unless they knew my name. Because there were some kids that were as brown as I was, but they were supposed to be white. You know? <laughs> But, but so, so so you wouldn't want you wouldn't have first did that. No, and, and a lot of <laughs> listen. I I had a kid in my PE class when I was playing uh, uh, handball. And it was on a Saturday morning. I would go early and thought I have to have a class on a Saturday. Morning. I want to go home, you know. So, but this professor or this PE teacher would have called the roll at the end of the class. So I would go early and I'd be playing on on the court, outdoor court and whatever, by myself. And if somebody wanted to play with me, all right, but you had to play with somebody. But I wasn't going to go in and for somebody to say, I don't want to play with you, you know, that kind of thing. So I'd be, so this guy, oh, come on. Oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. He said, ah, oh. he said, I'm so glad because I don't want to play with that nigga. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at him. I said, well, look, let's get started. <laughs> you don't want to play with me, either. He, he, he didn't know. He didn't know who he was. You know, talking to. So you don't want to play with me. Well, we played, and I lost some. He lost some. We played, and it was okay. Not a nice, regular guy. Yeah. So, professor. I mean, the teacher had the roll call after. When he heard my name, he turned purple. Oh man. Two row present. I never saw him again. <laughs> and he never told anybody I played with him. <laughs> It's insult to play with you, didn't it? This woman in the math class, first day I'm there, and I need some help with my math. If you answer my questions and you help me, I'll get it. But if I get stuck and you don't help me, then I can't go on. Because math is sequential. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through this semester. Because I've never taught a Negro before. I'm sitting there. She's talking about me in my presence. And I looked at that woman and I thought, this can't be happening. That's her job. She's being paid to teach everybody. But how could she be so racist? She was an old lady. She used to wear gloves in the morning with no fingertips because she was, her hands were cold. She looked like she was about ready to retire. And her name was, I swear to God, her name was Miss Freeze. <laughs> she was always cold. Huh? <laughs> now, she was, a, she was a great math teacher, but she never, if I raised my hand, she never called me. And every week we had a, on Friday, we had a quiz. And I, I wasn't doing well. I was not doing well. So I came out and said to my dad, I'm having a terrible time. I think I'm gonna flunk this math. I said, first of all, I hate this woman. <laughs> and he said, why? And I told him, he said, oh, don't worry about that. That's her problem, not yours. I said, I know, Daddy, but that hurts, you know? And then the kids are all going like this, and you know, and, tre and treating me like I'm, so, you know, like looking at me and, you know. Nobody 
nobody hit me, nobody spit on me, and they did that to some of the other students, you know, later on. But uh, nobody bothered me, but they just ignored me, or they looked funny, or they made faces, or whatever. So anyway, so... Um, but isolation was even worse. Oh, if, you know, it's like putting people in solitary confinement. You know that? It drives you crazy. I was 17 years old, man. I didn't go there to party, but I certainly didn't go there to be isolated. And I didn't know what I want. I had not a clue about what I was going to become. <laughs> it's like, you know, I had no, my father said, you work that out as you go along. Because I told him, I said, you know, I don't want to be a lawyer. He said, you don't have to be a lawyer. I'm not asking you to be a lawyer. You do what you want to do. That was cool. Oh, my mom and dad were great. You know, you figure it out. Go, just go to college, have a good time, you know. My parents loved Howard, they loved it. And I always look forward to going to college. I mean, it was gonna be like where I really became, you know, evolved and everything. And, and, and once I get the, the knack of it, I do well, you know. So anyway, my dad's all right, I tell you what, you come home on the weekend and Norman Francis, you know who Norman Francis is? President Xavier, who was president for 40 years. From Lafayette. Yes, well anyway, Norman was in, at Loyola Law School. He was the first black to graduate from Loyola. My dad worked that out. He didn't have to sue Loyola because they were Catholic and my dad had made friends with the, the, the leadership. The president and the dean of the law school, we used to have family picnics together before all of that stuff. So Norman got in and, and, and uh, Ben Johnson, who was also uh, a handsome young man with five or six kids. So the two of them started uh, at Loyola. So Norman would come to my dad's office to study. My father had a law library that he got when he graduated from Howard for getting the highest grade in research. Because it, it was available and my father would open up his office for people on, to come on Sundays and stuff for some of the young people who were doing research, and Norman would come every Sunday. And so he said, Norman, and I knew Norman, and his brother who was a priest, and so Norman was a math major at Xavier, and Norman was smart and very easygoing. So Norman, he said, Norman will tutor you. So Norman said, my dad called him and said, hey boy. <laughs> well, you come in here on Sunday? He said, I got a job for you. <laughs> he said, AP needs some tutoring in math. He said, I'll bring him on. So Norman tutored me for two, for two weeks, and I understood clearly what I didn't understand before. And I went back and took the weekly test, and guess what happened? Oh, love. excelling. She, on the Monday morning, I don't to the class, I don't know how this could have happened. <laughs> Swear to God. I don't know how this could have happened. Mr. Turo set the curve on the last quiz. Set the curve? I had the highest grade. For, for two weeks of tutoring from one? For, because he was answering my question. He said, you know how to do this? I said, yeah, but when you get stuck and you can't go forward, then you can't do the other parts. So he said, oh, you, you're fine, just whatever. So you know what I noticed? And this was the only time I saw a positive. I saw some students move their chairs over a little bit. Close, get, get close to it now. 
Okay, now you got some I, I saw two people do that. They didn't come too, they didn't come close, close but they weren't moving away. Okay, dude. And I thought, well, you know, there's some hope in this, but how long will I have to wait? <laughs> now, so, now that Miss Freeze, your, 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 math, your math teacher, says she don't know how this happened. I didn't help the Negro, <laughs> so I don't know how to say, I, I tried to <laughs> fail him. But he succeeded anyway. And, but he set the curve here. Yeah, it succeeded anyway. So even without whatever help she was. But giving. she could have heard that from you and, and and adjust your grade to what she want. But she. she and did. you know, I'm telling you, if I had been in a different place, I would have reported her. Because her job was to answer questions. She answered white kids' questions. I didn't have the same questions they had because I benefited from their questions, you know what I mean? But I still have my own. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't asking her to do anything that she wasn't doing for anybody else. I wasn't asking her to, to help me because I was black. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was asking her a question because she didn't do a good enough job explaining what she was teaching. And I see I taught for 30, I mean, I was in public education and taught and everything. But anyway, long story short. So, I thought, okay, this, is, this, this could be positive. I get back to my room one day, and there's a note stuck under my door. And I still have that note. You gotta be kidding. I have that note. And it was a torn piece of paper, and it says, uh, 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 Dear AP, I am Jewish, I am uh, Irish, I am Italian. <laughs> I'm a lot of things, and I live in the stadium room 12, da 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 and uh, it's too bad I can't be a friend of yours. And I'm white. Well, I said, of course, I'm the only black person here. <laughs> I wish I could be a friend of yours because I think this is a bunch of baloney, but I can't because if I become your friend, then I'll be totally isolated and blackballed. He said, and, and uh, I'm having a good time here, and I wish you, you were having a good time too. But if you wait two or three years, it'll be okay. <laughs> I said to myself, what? <laughs> so I went looking for him. I, I went looking for him. Oh, okay. So I figured, well, maybe we can work something out, be buddies. You know, I can have a friend to talk to, somebody to talk. To. And I went to his room, and I knocked on the door, and I went two or three times, and he was, he was either not, never there or he was ducking you. Or he was ducking me, you know. So I never. Note was just something encouraged. But I kept that note. I still have it. So anyway, my mom got on a bus because my father we only had one car. My mom got on a bus. I called my mom one day. I said, you know, nobody has spoken to me in three days. The only people that speak to me are the black women in the dining hall because we had a, you had to go through a, a cafeteria line. I'd get more food on my plate. Hey, baby, come over to Miles. We'll take care of you for the weekend. Oh, okay. I said, well, you know, it's really sweet of you, but you know, I got to make it here. You know, I'd love to come to your house, but I got to make, I got friends about, I'm going over to Southern this afternoon to see my buddies, but I got to make it here. And she said, well, I know they're giving you a hard time. And the groundsmen, the black men taking it, they'd see me coming out and going, hey man, we know you're doing it, brother, you know, keep. So they were all, all very supportive. So my mom, I called my mom one day and I said, I just, I can't do this. I cannot do it. My mom got on a bus left her other kids at home and came up to be with me. And I said, I can't have her do that. She stayed with Dr. Butler's house because she knew the Butlers. 
We had dinner with Dr. Butler. I, I was kind of dating one of his daughters. Which one? <laughs> the name was Shirley, I think. <laughs> one of the younger ones. She was sweet. Well, we went to a movie or something. You never dated back then. Yeah, our, yeah. She was in high school. But anyway, uh, but they were nice to me. I mean, I had, you know, some, and then I, I met another young family of people connected with me, Mark Robinson, and uh, he was in high school. Mark's a dentist now in Chicago and very successful. And uh, he lived with his aunt. And I used to have him come up and stay in the dorm with me. He was tall, tall, tall. White skin, but black features. So you knew he was black and he had curly red hair. <laughs> and Mark would come up. And uh, I said, come on, man, I just need some company. He said, I'll come stay in the dorm with you, you know, and so forth. And I'd go over to his house and sometimes eat with him. I could walk from the campus. He lived right off of Highland Road. All right. But what was it? What was the last name? Robinson, Mark, Mark Robinson. Robinson, yeah. And he did very well. Uh, I don't know where he went to. to uh, he's a dentist. He went to undergrad. Yeah. He, uh, and I don't know where he went to school because once I left LSU, I lost. I, would never go back to LSU. It was 35 years before I went back to LSU. When my mom came up like that, I, I said, this, I can't do that. I can't ask her to get on a bus. We don't have but one car. And uh, so I went home that weekend and I said to my dad, I think I gotta, I, I gotta get out of here. How long you had been in LSU at the time? I had been there probably 40 some odd days. I only stayed 55 days. <laughs> I was a 55. I was a 55-day wonder. <laughs> so you, you, you was three weeks late. So it's almost at the end of the school then. Uh, so you was only there for, for two, maybe two months. Yeah. So anyway, and then I'm gonna have to stop now. But uh, to to wrap kind of wrap this up until we get to the next session, uh, I just had gotten to the point where I realized, no matter what I did or how hard I worked because I was taking Spanish, and I, I remember the teacher, I was not moving fast enough along to conjugate the verbs, and I wanted some help, and maybe some techniques that he could teach me. He was a nice man, it wasn't a big class, and he thought, oh, go use the uh, audio, you know, the audio tapes. That, that, uh, I said, I've listened to the tapes, I need some help from you. No, I, I'm busy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, these people aren't it. They, they, they are going to make me fail. And I'm going to have to be a, a failure, and they're going to kick me out because I failed? And what, what am I going to do? Ah, that's not me. No, 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 no. I've got more ability than that. So I said to my dad, I can't do this. He said, you came here by yourself, on your own, you can leave any time you want. And I said, Thurgood Marshall's gonna be mad at you. <laughs> he said, he can be as mad as he wants. You are my son. You do what you wanna do. Now, remember Roy Wilson. When Roy Wilson got kicked out of LSU, Thurgood said to my dad, why didn't you vet him better? And my dad said, we vetted him at the best we could. We did not know about his dishonorable discharge. It never dawned on me to think, well, let's get his military record. So my dad said, so Thurgood said, well, the next time you've ever even so my father. Now, Thurgood and my dad were good friends, so, my, and my dad, he was soft-spoken. 
but you don't come on and blame him. You know, so my dad said, well, let me tell you something. You think it's easy getting plaintiffs to sacrifice their lives for these cases and their families? Do you think we have had cases where the whole family had to leave their home and we had to relocate them? Because they, do you know teachers who were fired from their jobs? Do you know, so you're not just talking about one person, you're talking about families. So, well anyway, so he said, look, you do what you want to do. So, so I said, okay, I'll do what I want to do. He said, well, do you want to leave now? I said, no, let's, let's give it, I just didn't know what to do. You know, I was really conflicted. Yeah, because now you're in a bad place. I'm in a very bad yeah, place. Mentally, just like and I don't, I didn't know. The worst part was I couldn't see that I could get, I could do it. I couldn't see that I could be successful. And I was successful oriented, very successful oriented. I mean, I'm, I've always had, I was always the guy who always led the, my friends. You know, I was always sort of the, the leader in charge of getting things done and organizing people together with them. And I thought, I can do this, I can do this, and I can make a contribution here, and this will be a great place for me, but this is not gonna work. And then all my friends at Southern, hey, get your heads out of there, come over here, you're gonna go to school with us, you don't have to put up with all of that, and I go home for the weekends, and my friends would be at Xavier having a good time, and Dylan, and I thought, that's, what's supposed, that's what it's supposed to be like. And I'm miserable, and then everybody pat me on my back because I was doing the right thing. I was integrating the school. So you had all of this, and I thought, what? I mean, you know what that's like? And I'm 17? So I said, okay, I give, it, give it some more time. My dad calls me, and he says, I'm, I got some good news and bad news, and I'm coming up to the campus, that's the good news. I said, well, what's the bad news? <laughs> he said, you gotta leave. <laughs> I said, you got it backwards. <laughs> The good news, I can leave? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> good news, you I, can leave, huh? He said, pack your bags, I'm on my way. This is a Friday. I said, what happened? He said, well, the, the lawyers for LSU found a loophole where they could go back and, and, and to trial and have the case uh, presented to a three-judge court because it's a constitutional issue. So we have the injunction. Remember, your case was never fully decided. We were still arguing your case. But I asked the court to put you in the school temporarily on an injunction. And that injunction is what has been revoked. So you have to leave tomorrow. And I said, I'm all, I am packed. <laughs> I am so packed, you won't believe it. And I said, saved by the bell. So, so and I said to my dad, I coming back. I am not coming back. But he knew that, though. He no matter what happens, and I am not coming back. My dad said, yeah, but we have legal maneuvers. And I said, you can maneuver, but remember, I'm not coming back. Dad, this saves me because I didn't leave because I failed. I left because of a loophole in the law. And it could take three years for that case to be decided. He said, I get all of that. I get all of that. I know you'd be happy. I registered you at Xavier. <laughs> he said, 
He said, I'm going to take you up there Monday morning. <laughs> he was ahead of you already, huh? But, but, but my, he, he was a great guy. I said, you did? He said, yeah, I registered. I said, Dad, you think somebody wants me in that class? I'm 55 days late. We <laughs> been worried about that. He said, well, go give it a try. Your dad was cool. He was a cool guy. Go give it a try. Go talk to them. But you registered. I registered you and paid the tuition. Now, this, this round November, is November? When is it? Well, it was 55 days from the date I entered, and I must have made it. It had to be around around that time, October, October, November. Yeah, it had to be around November, so it was 55. I, did, I wasn't counting the days. I had no idea. I just knew it was miserable days. So my, you know what my dad did? My dad filed an immediate appeal to the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> For you to go back to LSU? And you know they passed it. <laughs> I could have gone back in two weeks. <laughs> but you didn't want to go back there. My father said, look, it's important to do that because it shows the opposition where the Supreme Court's position is on this maneuver. Okay. Because it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. I mean, he knew what he was doing. No. He was so smart. He was so, so smart. We all know 82. He was smart. And he was so low-keyed. He never bragged to people about all these maneuvers. You know, he had more than 100 civil rights cases. Uh, over. 100, over 100. And do you know one case, the, the desegregation of the New Orleans public schools took eight years of, of hearings, 37 hearings. It's the longest civil, uh, I mean, uh, a civil rights desegregation case that the NAACP has ever had. 37 hearings, and those guys used to have to come down, Thurgood and, and, and uh, 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 Constance Baker Motley and Robert Carter and Jack Greenberg, all of his lawyers used to come down and they'd say, man, your father's amazing, and he'd go in just as quietly and soft-spoken. He said, sometimes people would say, Toro, can you speak up a little bit? <laughs> My father said sometimes he'd be out of New Orleans and he'd be in the country around here and he'd be walking into court, and my father's kind of chubby, and he carried a little briefcase, and he was just unassuming, you know. Mm -hmm. His opposition would be going in, up the steps with him, and they'd say, have you seen that nigga Duro yet? <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to my dad. <laughs> to my dad. Ooh. And he'd say, he'd just look at him and chuckle. He wouldn't answer. And he said then the, the judge would call the lawyers up, he said, I won half my case because they were so embarrassed. They <laughs> <laughs> couldn't even defend the case, did they? But you know, he didn't tell me a lot of these things. A lot of people told me things, you know. But I heard so many. Since my dad died, people have told me stories. And I'm going to tell you some of those stories. It is the first part. I mean, the man was amazing. And you know what? My mother was amazing. My mother was equal partner of my dad. She started, well, because I had five sisters, my mother started Girl Scouts for black girls, brownies for girls, YWCA's for girls, camp experience at the, at the white uh, Girl Scout camp. They made, a, my mother and a group of women got together and asked to have a, a Girl Scout uh, troop and a brownie troop. And we want to use the camp that you have across the lake. Guess what they made the blacks 
initially started doing with my mom's group. They made they let them use the camp on weekends in the fall after the camp was closed for the summer. <laughs> my mother said, "That's all right. We'll take it. We'll take it because you start somewhere. You don't say no or get angry. You say thank you, and then you start working with it." But, but the interesting thing about it, when we think about it, how did none of that make any sense? Because <clears throat> these same people, we cook for them. Oh. Raise them, breastfeed of course. them. Of course, of course. So of you, course. Go you go figure this. Oh, you know. And then they talk about, oh, yeah, oh, Mamie the May. Oh, she's like family. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I hear that. And the other thing is, since my dad died and all of that, I have some stories to tell you about. I found my history and my genealogy right here in Baton Rouge at Bagatelle Plantation. And that my great-great-grandfather, who was the first black Turo. Turo is French people from La Rochelle, France. Oh, okay. oh. Adolphe Turo served for three terms in the Reconstruction Legislature. I got stories for you. Oh, right? no, so Turo's a French from France. From France. But they was of African descent? No, they came here and, and married into French families oh, okay. and had sex with black oh, women right slaves. Then. Oh, all right then. And my, the first black Turo that started my family was Adolphe Turo. But you've heard of, uh, of Tuscuco Plantation? Yeah, burned down. Well, that's Benjamin Tuscuco is one of my great, great French white uncles. Because his brother, uh, uh, Augustine Dominique Turo, and I'll tell you that whole story. Well, you know, now I remember some of that. Let me tell you why. When years ago, that young lady came down with Kathy Hamrick about. Oh, yeah, but she's, she's my white cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I remember from, that. From Maryland. Maryland. She lives in Maryland. Right. When, when we did the slave graves and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I was part of yeah. all that. Oh, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen. White people came out of the woodwork after Rachel Emanuel did her documentary, Journey for Justice. That was the first. You know, everything that's happened, I'm telling you the story about my dad and our family. But once I got out of LSU, I left. I never went on campus for 35 years. I got married in 1960. I married Faye. My wife, she's in there, but you'll meet her another time. She's just resting. And she's from Baton Rouge. So we used to, from Baton Rouge. Yeah. My mother started the AKAs in New Orleans with her friends, and my father started the Alphas in New Orleans. No, with you their gotta friends. be kidding. No, I'm telling you. They came back from Howard. My father started the Martinet Societies. And now there are three of them. One in Shreveport, one in New Orleans, and one in and one my, my, my father was, you know, for for almost sixteen or seventeen years at different times, he was the only black lawyer in the state. Because a lawyer, a young lawyer would go to law school somewhere, come back here and want to practice. Couldn't make any money. And you had to stay here. My, my father didn't start practicing law full time until he was 40, 44 years old, 44 years old, 1942. Now, where did he go to he, 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 he went to Howard, but he worked in the customs house in New Orleans as a clerk liquidator to support his family. When he came back from Howard, he was 20, he was 1927, he was 28 years old. He got married when he was in his 30s to my mom in 1931, but he had a job at the Customs House. The Customs House in New Orleans is a whole block square. It's responsible for the ports from Texas all the way to Florida. And a black man, Walter Cohen, that Cohen High School was named for in New Orleans, 
whose mother was black and his father was Jewish, was the commissioner of customs who was appointed by President Harding. And my father worked for Walter Cohen. And I have pictures of him. I mean, we don't know this history. And, and they had an organization of black politicians at that time called the Black and Tan. And my father worked for Walter Cohen in maritime law. And then when he had the first teacher's evalu teacher equalization case in, in, in the 1940s, I think it was 1946 or something, I don't know, Thurgood came in and, 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 they loved, and they won. They won equal pay for black teachers in the state of Louisiana. New Orleans first and then they began to, they made him sue each parish until finally the court said, no, you have to do it. But the same thing was true with the schools. They made him sue each parish until eventually they passed, you know, that all the schools would be integrated. Just like LSU, they, they made him do each graduate program. So he, and he stayed on all those cases. Oh, he's just plug, plugging away, plugging now, away. Now, now, you got to tell us what AP stands for. Oh, Alexander Pierre Toureau. And the, and the Toureau is French from La Rochelle, France. And I will tell you all about that in another chapter. <laughs> we enjoy this. We hate to stop right now, but we yeah, this, is we, part, this is part one. I have learned more about my family and my history than I've ever known. My parents, my father never talked about, and I, he knew about his grandfather was a slave. He knew which plantation they came from. There's a book called Along the River Road by uh, a man named Cain, a white man, and I have a copy of that book with an autograph that said to my, uh, uh, good luck. My father knew because he explained all that to him. I said to my dad, Creole people, where are the rest of our family? I only know your brothers and your one sister. Where were they other? supposed to have 12. Where are the rest of them? He didn't tell me four of, four of his sisters. That's another story. Left the family and lived as white oh. for most of their lives. I got to tell you that story. Yeah, that's, but that story has had a happy ending that just ended a few years ago. Now that's going to be good. Yeah. Now, 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 hold on. You, you, you got so much life, so much energy, so much youthfulness about you. But what I found out, you look young, you act young. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what year, were you, what year you was born and what by? 1936. 19 I'm 87 years old. And, and what, what, the month, what month? January 24th. Oh, Aquarius. Okay. But, you know, it's funny because my mother's family was so large, my father's family was so large, I never knew what day I was born. <laughs> because I said to my dad, like I was in school, Daddy, what, what's my birth? What day am I born? And so I said, you're born January 21. Because what we would do is, my mother's family, my grandmother uptown, my, my maternal grandmother, she, would, she had like 13 grandchildren. So she would have a birthday party in the middle of the month and you went to that birthday party. It didn't matter what day you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Just come to the so, party. You're born in January? <laughs> nobody, nobody cares what day you're born on. Just come to the birthday party. So it'll be three or four of us each month having birthdays. So I, I just put on January. Mom said, you can't keep doing that. That's wrong. You're, I said, well, Daddy told me I was born January. What does he know? You're born on January 24th. What AP Turo you doing? But that's the way we were. Yeah, it was just. But I think 
I think my dad was uh, a lot of that generation. My father said, you know, there were no Turo slaves. I said, oh, then I must be white. <laughs> Where do you think we came from if there were no Turo slaves? There were. There were. I found all this out since he died. And so many secrets that were kept. But you know what? I understand something now that I never understood. He was protecting a lot of his family. And he was protecting himself as well. And that's an interesting thing that I've never told anybody. So you're going to be the first person to hear that oh, okay. from, from my point of view and, and uh, why. And I still have to write that as a memoir because this is an incredible, I just, I just want to show you something. Where's my phone? I just want to show you okay. something that I'll give you to, to have for your picture. And, and, and also about his stature in New Orleans that was just rehabbed and has been attacked and vandalized. And we think it's been, and this was last week, and that's been on television as well, by white supremacists who are getting back at black monuments in New Orleans. Oh, so, right. so we, you know, it, I'm glad you want to do this. Because I, I, I interviewed the, the young lady, Shalene Jones, who done the statue. Boy. Oh, you know Shalene? Uh, that's my girl. I interviewed her. Oh, she my God. Me. What a lovely. I knew her when she was a student at Xavier. You got to be kidding. No, when she was at, when, when, when John Scott was asked to do my dad's statue, John wanted so much money. We said, look, <laughs> not we, because that was done by the city okay. when Mark Morio was mayor. So the city said, well, that's beyond the budget that we're, you know, whatever. So some, he said, but I have a young student, and that was Shalene Jones, and that's when I met her. Yeah, she's, she's Queen Shalene. That's how oh, she's, she's wonderful. She's an awesome human being, just, yeah. just a, a Jew and a joy to be with. Oh, th this is what I want to show you. Oh, hold on, hold on. No, no, you'll get this. Okay. Uh, June of last year, the first and only two wrote, these are all of my father and his siblings, his mother and his father. This is my dad there. This is his th four sisters. This is his dad. And this is my, his older brother. And this is one of his sisters. And this is my dad and two of his brothers. This is 110 people. We had a Turo reunion. These are all Turo's. You gotta be kidding. And that's just the words I was going to get in touch with. No, this that's, the, 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 that's, that's his, that's your dad's side. And these are from all over the, yeah, this is not my mother's family. This, this is, is my dad's family. family. You got one or two got a little color on here. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're all over, they're Rainbow Coalition, man. Man, this is beautiful. Now, how long ago y'all did this? June of 22, last, last June. Oh, when they, when they, uh, did your dad's statue? Yes, statue? yes, during the middle of it, and that yeah. it, it was programmed for that. So you're going to get some pictures. Yeah, I, I was supposed to say, came, I was supposed to say, came to the, yeah. the statue. Yeah, Shalene was there. Shalene was there. That, that looked like Mark. That is Mark. Mark is my nephew. It's my great nephew. Mark Raymond's mother is, Mark, is my niece. No, that, that Mark and his dad and his, and Rhonda. Of course, R Rhonda, yeah, is, Rhonda is my niece. Love, I, I, I remember that now. I can remember that. Mark yeah. is doing some big things too. Oh yeah, Mark, Mark is, is doing well. Mark, Mark. Mark, that wheelchair is, is, is nothing but a little, slight inconvenience for him. Well, he doing some it's, big it's a horrible thing because you know, it's, it's got limiting, uh, 
you know, he's got to be taken care of by someone all right, the time. Right, right. But he's still moving. No, but he's doing well. And you know what? He's enjoying the life he's got. Yeah. You he, know? He, he, he truly making the most. Yes, he is. And he's doing good, good things. You know, he's doing wonderful things. But I've got a few stories for you. But we need to kind of finish up. We was talking about you when you left LSU and you went to Xavier. Right. So now what happened after that? Then? Well... So what I did was I went, I decided that instead of trying to do 16 credits for the semester, I would do a, uh, an abbreviated uh, semester of uh, credits. I would do 12 credits. And uh, so I went up to talk and then go to summer school. So I went up to talk to the, to the registrar. And he said, well, it's really not up to me. He said, we'll, we'll accept you. But some of the professors might not really want to let you be in that class this late. So I said, well, let me talk to each one of them. But if you approve my being here, I think I can work something out with them. So I, I went to see them. And, you know, they, they were polite and respectful and, and, and uh, sensitive to what I had been through. But they were a little reluctant to do that. And, and I said, you know, this doesn't mean that you're going to get have to do this for hundreds of people, this is a very exceptional circumstance. Nobody would start 55 days late. And I wouldn't uh, expect you to understand all of that, but give me a shot. Anyway, they did. And I entered. And I had friends there. And uh, So you, you, you entered Xavier after you said LSU for 55 days. So after 55 days, or going on 60 days, you entered into Xavier. Yes, and, and, and I told the professors, I said, I'm, I'm not here on, on a humble, you know. I'm not asking you to give me something. I will work for it. You have midterms coming up or whatever exams you have, I'll take them. Even though I may not have been here for the material, I'll do what I can do. You grade me the way you would grade any other student. And if I pass, I pass. If I fail, I fail. That's all I'm asking you to do. So they said, well, that's fair. So I said, okay, it's up to you. I got through that semester. I didn't fail anything. <laughs> I did not fail anything. I got a few Bs and a few Cs. In, in, a, few, in a few weeks, basically a few weeks. In a, yeah, and I got a few Bs and a few Cs. And then I started the second semester. And I had, you know, fresh start. So I did okay. And then I went to summer school and picked up the other four credits because in, most times in a year you want to get 16 credits. So I did that. And uh, I was very happy. <laughs> I was happy as a clam. And I had good friends there who helped me. And uh, I worked during the summer and I did different things. And then I started my sophomore year. And from my sophomore year, my junior year and my senior year, I had the most incredible undergraduate education that I had ever anticipated. And I was president of my sophomore class, what? my junior class, <laughs> and my senior class. Look, you were just glad to be, you were, so you, you stood out. You wanted to make sure that. Well, you, I, I, I just, it just all seemed like the right place yeah. for me, and it was what I was looking for. I didn't realize before I went to LSU that Xavier was right there, 
but I, I had other visions for myself. And then I, I was very active in the student council, and uh, I got involved in all kinds of activities and with friends. And we were the first class to go and have our, our junior-senior prom off, off campus. We had it at Punchatrain Beach. <laughs> so that was big time back then. Yeah, because you know Xavier was a was a small. Well, we didn't have too, huh? yeah, and we didn't have hotels to go to like other you know white kids did have hotels or ballrooms. So I went. I said, look, we go to the president. We talk to her or the dean or whoever is in charge, and we explain to them that the gymnasium is not a nice place for a prom. Let's go to someplace. And they had just rehab Lincoln Beach. We had a great time. It was called Shipwreck by the Sea. <laughs> we had Dave Bartholomew and Black, oh, oh yeah, Black Tie and, and Catered. I think it might have been, I, I, I don't know if it was Lear Chase, but we had cocktails and we had, um, you know, whatever. So we started making different arrangements for things, thinking differently. It, it was, uh, that was then 19, that, I started there in 1953, and I graduated in 57. So now, let's, let, let's, let, now, what happened, what was, what happened is that you, you literally thrived. I thrived, took yeah. leadership. And you know what I said? I was nurtured. Right. But it, you, you, you became like your dad, really. You, you, no, you, you no, yeah, too, I right? became like me. <laughs> but you found yourself. No, but my mom and dad were those kinds together, of people. Right. I mean, my mother was involved in, I had five sisters. My mother was involved in finding activities and civil rights uh, restrictions placed, removing civil rights restrictions placed on women and girls. My mother and a group of her friends went to the, white Girl Scout Council in New Orleans and said, we want a Girl Scout troop. We want a Brownie troop. We want our girls to have all the things that they need to become successful women. And uh, they started that. They also said to them, we want to use the camp. The, the, the white Girl Scout Council in New Orleans had a big camp across the lake. So my mother and some of her friends said, we want to use the camp. And they said, well, the camp is for us to use in the summer, but what we'll do, we'll let you use it once the camp closes in the fall. <laughs> so my mother said, okay, that's a beginning. Okay. See, that's a beginning. You know what I mean? You, you ask for something, people give you a little piece. You don't want to say no, but you start with a little piece and you start working on it and working on it and working on it. And we used to go over there and get the camp set up. My mother would say, okay, we're all going over to get the camp ready. So the girls would have a two or three weekends in the fall. Now they couldn't swim and all that, but they had a Girl Scout camp and they could go and do some of the things that Girl Scouts did. So my parents and friends of ours were active and involved. My mother and <clears throat> Sybil Heidel's mother and, and all of those Creoles in the 7th Ward uh, started a group for the girls called the Merrymakers so that they would have a club of girls. Now, they, none of my parents' friends who were all graduates from Howard, they were never debutantes, but they had their own sense of who they were. Different strokes for different folks. My parents never belonged to a big Mardi Gras club and all that, but we got invitations to go to parties and things. But they had their own circle of friends. And, and that was the way things happened in New Orleans. And then I had my uptown uh, uh, in-laws who knew 
Dryad Street and Louisiana Avenue and, and all the uptown because my mother's family served the uptown community. My grandfather had two drugstores and insurance company and his brothers had uh, uh, Louisiana Weekly and all of that. So they were all involved in activities, activities, activities. And the civil rights momentum in the city from people, black people and brown people and Creole people. And then they started reaching out to the white community. They started with the Catholic uh, uh, people at Loyola and getting to know them who were more friendly. Norman Francis was the first black graduate from Loyola Law School. Okay. And my dad had started making friends with the dean of the law school, uh, Father Toomey and Father Fichter, who was the president, I think it was Father Fichter who was the president of the university. We used to have interracial family picnics. Mm. You know, and uh, there was also uh, a couple named, uh, he was Dr. Ryan and his wife. I think he was from New England someplace. He was, I don't know if he taught English or history or whatever, but my parents played bridge with their friends once a month. They would have bridge, bridge uh, couples, you know, and they would, they would do, go to different people's houses to, to play bridge. And then they would have dinner, and then the guys would clean up the kitchen and tell dirty jokes <laughs> and have a good time. And Osceola Blanchard, who taught at uh, 35, I think, or whatever, he was a singer. He had an a cappella group, and they would sing songs in the kitchen. I used to love to see that. And, and, and uh, sometimes Leah Chase would cook, but there was, a, I don't know if you ever heard of Lena Richards. No, she had a place up on Louisiana Avenue called the Chicken Shack, and she was a caterer. And uh, because my mother lived uptown, she was a friend of my mother's. And, and she would bring the food and it would be delicious. And those people would, and guess what they called themselves? The Eat Moors. <laughs> <laughs> eat more than everybody else. They eat Moors, right? <laughs> they had a great time. And then in the summertime, we'd all get together about those 20 families and we would rent Shangri-La out on the road to Pontchartrain Beach that a friend of ours owned was a house up on stilts and you could have a picnic downstairs and everything and, and do, you know, kids could play games, nice grounds, and you could walk to Lincoln Beach and it would be about 20 families and we do that every summer. So we created a world for ourselves. And when somebody traveled, like I remember once, I used to go to a camp in Pennsylvania. When I was a kid, Pennsylvania. I, I said to my dad, I want to go to a real camp, not some Whatever. I want to go to a camp like I see in the movies, where you have boating and horseback riding, canoeing and stuff like that. I was like eight, nine, ten years old. So we had some friends who had a camp in Pennsylvania. And uh, so uh, my father let me go on a train, and, and the Pullman porters would say, what? I got on a train by myself. I was ten years old. <laughs> And the Pullman Porters would say, "My dad, we're going to take care of him." My father used to make me wear a shirt and tie too. A shirt and tie. You're darn right. At that age. Oh yeah, gentlemen. You had to represent. Pullman Porters would take care of you. But and I, I did that for six or seven years. And I used, and I said, "My dad, I don't want to sit up in the coach all night because you'd leave in New Orleans in the morning, and the next afternoon you'd be in Philadelphia. But you had to sit. It was just a, a coach, so you had to sleep sitting up in those chairs. It was half half of the baggage car." 
they had turned into a seat, you know, a regular coach for black people. And then it went all the way from New Orleans to, to New York. And I would get off in Philadelphia and pick up people all along the way. But they only had seats for about, it was two and two on either side of the aisle. And it'd go through Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and so forth. And it was fun because you got to know everybody on the coach. And they'd come with their big old baskets, the chicken man. <laughs> so would you 10, 11, 12 years old traveling yeah. across country, really? Yeah, by myself. By yourself. But see, my parents had both gone away to college when they were young. My mother went to a boarding school uh, in, uh, it, it was Talladega in, in Alabama, I think it was, which became a college because there were no high schools here for black kids when my mom was going to high school. My dad didn't finish high school. He finished in Washington when he left and ended up in Washington, but he didn't finish high school till he was 21 because he was working part-time and going to high school. And he, he didn't ever go to undergraduate school. I don't know. He didn't. He took some courses with some people at University of Maryland, which is right next door to Washington. I mean, you can walk right across certain streets and you're in Maryland from Washington, D.C. But he took some college courses with, I think, some white professors. And then when he was ready, uh, they had started a law school at Howard, and he went at night. And he only went for two years. And he was one only one of two people out of his class that passed the D.C. bar when he was ready to take the bar exam. And he was offered a job. He finished law school in 1925, and he was offered a job as an assistant district attorney or whatever, something like that, which is common to take law graduates and give them these assistant district attorney you know, right. jobs. And they had a lot of those kinds of positions. Uh, as a stepping stone for young lawyers. And he said he liked it and he thought he would have a good career in, in, in uh, a legal career. And he enjoyed working with the government and, and with the Department of Justice or whatever. But his mother got sick here. And uh, he, he was one of the younger children, but he was devoted to his mother. He used to send whatever he made. He sent half of whatever he made home to his mom. And so he, he, he made the decision to come back to New Orleans and uh, take care of his mom. She had cancer, and uh, some of the older children had left, and uh, four, of his, four of his sisters uh, had left the family, decided to live as white. So uh, <laughs> his family... Now, now hold on, now. Okay. you said that, that... How many of his sisters? Your dad's sister. My father had uh, six sisters and six brothers. One girl who was a teenager died when she was in the teens, and one other child died as a toddler. Uh, his, they lived in, uh, in the Marigny right below Esplanade, and uh, they had open fireplaces. And this little boy, his, his nightshirt got caught by the fire, and he, he was severely burned, and he caught pneumonia, and he died. And we tried to track because I did, in my book, I did a genealogy research uh, project to try to find his name, but we never found his name. And in those days, your children's names and names were registered during census time, so it must have been an off-census year. And we, we never knew his name and never knew where he was buried. But everybody validated the fact that this little, little guy had, uh, had died as a toddler. But anyway, the, 
in the in the teen, 19, say 16, 19, 16, 17, my, when my grandfather left the family to go live in New York in Harlem with his mother and his stepbrothers, he didn't provide financial support for his children and his wife. So Twelve children. Well, there weren't 12 left by then. His oldest brother had gotten a job in New York working on a, a shipping line from New Orleans to New York. Uh, some of the other, because remember, the 12, my father was one of the young, younger children, so his older brother was oh, right, yeah. an adult by the time he was like in elementary school, you know, so uh, Uncle Adolf. And uh, two of his older brothers, Eddie and, and Louis, uh, were, were carpenters eking out a living. That's what their father did. And their father also was a contractor. He used to build houses and stuff like that. But they didn't have, always make a lot of money. People didn't pay them a lot. And, you know, a lot of the black people were, were the builders. They were the construction people. But anyway, and my father didn't want to do that. And uh, he, his father, everybody recognized that my dad was a very exceptional child. The principal of the white school on Bayou Road that he went to had, it, it was after Reconstruction, they had black teachers, but the principal was white, and then after one year, the whole thing changed over. She used to stop, the white principal used to stop by his house, and he could walk, he would walk to school with her. She would wait for him to come out, walk to school with her. He said, you know, people just gravitated towards him. And he had a, he had a mind, he was just, but low-keyed, you know, he never bragged or anything. But if you want to know something, ask AP. <laughs> so anyway, so he, uh, he came back to support his mom. But his sisters, and this was a secret nobody knew, man. It was a common practice in New Orleans for a lot of Creole people who were having financial trouble to pass for white to work. We were told in our neighborhood in the Seventh Ward where we lived that we had neighbors. You see Mr. So-and-so, he works as white, so if you see him publicly, or you see him on the bus sitting in front of the screen, or you see him working somewhere or whatever, you can't talk to him because you'll get him in trouble. You know? So you all had to be prepped. We had to be told that, and we knew that from the time we were kids, and we called them passablons. Passing for white. That's the old French for passing for white. And it was against the law. They could have gone to jail. So my father's four sisters, very attractive women. They had been at school, probably went to fifth, sixth grade maybe, probably sixth grade. And uh, they were young women. And when, when my grandfather left, the family had, they didn't have money for rent. They had to go live with the grandmother, and uh, these women said, well, there's no room. You know, all of us, we can't, we can't even fit in the house. There's no room for all of us. So four of them, one didn't do it. Four of them said to the family, we are going to live as white. We're going to change our names, change our identity, and you must never tell anyone else and destroy all of the pictures that belong to us. And you can't tell your children or anybody else, just, just between us. I can't imagine how the family felt, how the mother felt, how the other children felt, how the older brothers felt. 
how my dad felt. Now, one sister who was a year or two older than my dad, my grandmother had two children in one year. She had one child at the beginning of the year, one child at the end of the year. She had 12 children. But anyway, uh, it, it was a bad time. My father was, all, was also a teenager. One of the girls was only 14. You made that decision? Well, she was gone with the, oldest, the older ones, you okay. see. Uh, and they were, very, they were very beautiful. I've seen pictures of them now. So anyway, I never knew they existed. None of us ever knew they existed, okay? My father, he didn't want to be in construction. And his father had said to him when he was, I think my grandfather was a good man, but he had been born on a plantation and his mother was a former slave. And she had had a relationship with my great-grandfather, who was a slave on a nearby plantation, who had a wife and five children. She was an extra relationship that he had that created my, my, uh, my grandfather, uh, uh, Louis Turo. And they came to New Orleans, this, uh, they came to New Orleans, just the, the, his mother and him, and she was a teenager. She was 15 or 16 years old. You know, people got married when they were 13 and 14 right. in those days. As soon as they could menstruate, they would get married. And as soon as they could menstruate, they would have, make these girls have babies. And there were men who all they did was breed young girls. I mean, what a horrible, horrible life. So anyway, uh, and we, I didn't know any of that. I learned all this history on my own. We weren't taught any of that. No, no. You know, no, so exactly. the history of, of our culture, and I think my dad was ashamed of some of it, you know, but I, I used to... I, I mean, but you know, you had four aunties who you knew nothing about. You nothing didn't even know about. they exist. I didn't know they To this existed. day, you never met them, or, or, or you just, have you seen pictures of them? No, 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 they, they destroyed all of that. I saw pictures of his mother and his older brothers and my one aunt, Aunt Vic, she was wonderful. I knew her. She lived here in New Orleans. She went to New York. She came back. She had a family right here. She never had children. She worked for my dad for years. And so anyway... Uh, but you know, the other four sisters, you don't know. They could, they, they could, they, their family could be right here in New Orleans. They, you never know. they could have been anywhere. And there could be hundreds of them. And I never knew who they were. It just, they didn't exist. I mean, it's like, suppose somebody told you your father had four sisters that were secret and they went to live somewhere else in the world, and you were never to know who they were. Yes. So you'd never know. Yeah. So my dad came back to New Orleans. He was a lawyer. He was very involved in NACP in Washington. He was very involved in, in being an activist. He also wrote articles for the black press, but he wouldn't use his name because he didn't want people to think <laughs> that he was a, wanted to be a newspaper man or he didn't have money enough to be a lawyer, you know, so. What name he used, you do today? No, he didn't use a name. He would just write, he wouldn't, you know how, how you have a byline by putting, you know, he just, he just wrote the story. Oh, okay. And he used to also investigate like housing problems where, because my father could pass for white, you know, he looked like white. In fact, sometimes people, when I would travel with him, they'd say, who's, who's that white man you're with? <laughs> I said, oh, that's not a white man, that's my daddy. <laughs> oh, 
oh, he looks like white. Yeah. I said, yeah, well, we're mixed race, you know. I said, I, I, have, a, I have three sisters that are vanilla, and I got th two other sisters that are chocolate, so we have chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> got a little bit everything. <laughs> but anyway, uh, my mother uh, had come back from college in 1925. Where your mom went to college at? She went to Howard. Oh, she went to Howard. Too. Yeah, now her parents were well off. My, my grandfather, Joseph Jules Dejois, uh, had two drugstores. They lived uptown around Louisiana Avenue, Holy Ghost Church, and uh, right on Daniel Street. And uh, they had two drugstores. He had a small apartment house uh, right on Daniel and Third Street or whatever with four apartments and a grocery store on the bottom. And then one of his drugstores had doctor's offices over it on Daniel and First Street. And he and several of his cousins, Dejois, started the Louisiana Life Insurance Company. And it was one of the largest insurance companies during that time. My grandfather died young. He, he had a stroke and, uh, in the drugstore, and uh, my mother had, had uh, recently finished uh, a, a pharmacy school, and her older brother was a pharmacist at the time, Joseph. So Joseph had the second drugstore. But Joseph got uh, tuberculosis. And they sent him to Arizona to heal himself, and he didn't heal, and he, and he died. And my grandfather and Joseph died within a short period of time, so my mother was the only pharmacist to support the family. And she was, she was not married at the time when her father died. And uh, so what, what she did was, you know, they, they uh, sold or closed one of the drugstores. She had a brother at Xavier. Xavier had started a school of pharmacy by then. So then her younger brother, Leonidas, was in, law, in a school of pharmacy. So they figured, well, when he gets out of school, then my mother wouldn't have to run the drugstore and support the family. Because my mother had also, she was from a family of 10. And my grandmother said, uh, <laughs> she was a beautiful woman, she looked like white. Uh, she said she was so embarrassed most of the time because she was having so many babies. She said she'd have a baby before the next baby wasn't even walking. <laughs> but those people made babies. But uh, anyway, my grandmother was a, she was a beautiful woman. So uh, she would come down. My parents got married in 1931 during the Depression, Corpus Christi Church. And they bought a house on Rochebleau Street near London Avenue, and they brought my father, it was a two-family two house, so my grandmother lived in one half and my mom and dad lived in the other. And my mother was pregnant with my older sister, who is the first child, Sylvia, and that's the same year my grandmother died. She died in 1934. I was born in 1936, and we were all sort of born like two or three years apart. And so we, there were six of us. My mother, still had to go up and support her family, so it, it was rough. My dad would get up, mom would get up, my mom would be plaiting all my sister's hair and putting ribbons in their hair, my dad would be on the, sitting on the toilet and put, put your foot on the shoe shine box so he could shine your shoes. <laughs> so you got to go to school with shoe shine. <laughs> and we all had Buster Brown shoes, and, and then we would all my father would take my mother uptown. He'd take us to school drop so I took my mother uptown, bring my grandmother downtown. And then we, the drugstore didn't close till 9 o'clock. We'd come home, my grandmother was our caretaker. 
have to take my grandmother uptown, bring my mother back home. By 10 o'clock at night, we'd be in the pajamas sleeping on the back seat of the car. Because <laughs> y'all ride with them. Yeah, yeah, because we had to go. You know, it wasn't like, well, auto babysitter. We didn't have an auto babysitter. No babysitters around. So, well, uh, now, now, how did you feel? You're the only boy in this family. Yeah. And what age? What age are you compared? To I'm you? I'm number two. You're number two. So yeah. you're the second oldest, but you're the only second boy. oldest. So you don't have nobody really to play with. Oh no! Oh no! 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 The neighborhood I lived in had like 50 kids on the block. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All those Creole families. It was great because everybody had, like, if you were in second grade, all your friends were the same age as you, you know. So there were so many kids on the block, and we stayed in that community. We moved out of the first house, got a little small, and my mother, the last set of children I had was twins. So when my mother had the twins, we needed another bedroom, and we moved to Parker Street, where we the house is still there. Unfortunately, uh, the whole neighborhood has deteriorated, and we still. My sister owns a home and lives there, and we put a marker up to honor my dad. But the neighborhood is is terrible. We lived in a house with one bathroom, all eight of us, <laughs> all eight of us. And, make it work. And and you know what? The water in New Orleans was so hard. Uh, you you would get a a line around the bathtub. And and one of my sisters was like, "You didn't scrub the tub out. Come back here and scrub your job." <laughs> well, well, but at least y'all got a chance to change it for each one of each yeah. person. We, we didn't change that water. Stayed there to the last oh, person. Man. And yeah. guess what? We no, I don't remember nobody got sick. No, nobody no, got no, sick. No, 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 no. I know. No, like and that. you know what? I never saw. I mean, having five sisters and all that, I never saw any female things around the bathroom or anything. I never, I never even thought about it. You know, I, because I you never saw them. Yeah, I never saw you never saw like them. That. You know, and and uh, like uh, if somebody's in the tub and I had to take a leak, I'd say, "I'm coming in, cover up." <laughs> yeah, 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 I got it. What you gonna do? <laughs> Ain't nowhere else to go. Huh? I said to my dad, "Why in the heck don't you buy another house with a big?" <laughs> oh, that's not important. We're comfortable. We have everything we need. My father was a man of simple taste. Now, a lot of our friends who were, who were very successful and so forth and so on, they had beautiful houses and they had beautiful cars. And my father never had a good car. He never had a good that, car. That, that was important. And until we got older and, you know, once, we, once some of us left town and got married with him, my father bought a nice big car and then one of the hurricanes came and flooded the whole thing out and he lost it. <laughs> oh, Lord, that even mad at you Because my father said, you ought to buy a station wagon. I mean, we used to all fit in that one car. My dad didn't buy a station wagon until we all left. And <laughs> <laughs> room for him, right? This and that was the year the hurricane came and, and ruined it because they had water, like six feet of water. That, okay, now, 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 what did you major in at Xavier? You know, I never knew what I wanted to do. And I, I, I knew. Hold on, now, now you lead, you in leadership. You run, <laughs> <laughs> you running everything at Xavier now. Now what, now, hold on, now, what you mean? You didn't know what you wanted to do? You know, I, I envied my friends, some of my friends, who knew exactly what they wanted to do from the time they were in, like elementary school or high school, and two or three of my friends, like. Uh, uh, Sybil Moriel, for, she's a Heidel. Her father was a doctor. Her dad and my dad went to Howard together. And they were born on the same day. And they used to send each other birthday cakes on their birthdays. But they were great buddies. And they were like family to us. Cece Heidel, who was one of the sons, was more my age, a, a year or two younger. And he said, I'm going to be a doctor like my dad. You're going to be a lawyer like your dad? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
No, no. So uh, I never knew what I wanted to do. But I'll tell you how smart my dad was. I told him one time, I said, I, I just want to tell you, I was growing older, I said, I just want to tell you something. Because, you know, people would say to me when I'm a kid, pat me on my head, you're going to be a lawyer like your daddy. And I'd look at him and say, yeah, that's what I'm, you know. <laughs> so I said, I got older, I said to my dad, you know, I really don't want to be a lawyer. He said, did I ask you to be a lawyer? You do what you want to do. So I said, yeah, but I don't know what I want to do. He said, let me tell you something. It's more important to know what you don't want to do. Okay, that's pretty So you remember that. You figure out what you want to do, but remember, don't do anything you don't want to do. Do what you want to do. So I said, yeah. He said, it'll come to you. You figure it out. I like working with people, and I like teaching. And I, I used to volunteer to help kids when I was in college. Uh, in the Ninth Ward, I'd go down and... and take coach basketball or, you know, play sandlot football with them and stuff. I wasn't a great big football athlete, but I know how to play football. We played in the lots at home, you know. But I like, I, and I like, and I taught swimming. And and I was good at, well, I learned all these things at camp, the camp that I used to go to. Okay, I used to good. teach women how to swim from the Y, we finally got service at the YWCA off of Canal Street. And there was where punch where UNO is was a naval base, and all white. Somehow or another, some somebody got a deal because they had an indoor swimming pool, and we didn't have swimming pools around here. Uh, Shakespeare Park was the one place that had a swimming pool. Well, way uptown, and if you were Creole, you were in the swimming circle, but black as a beach your butt. <laughs> oh yeah. That was the bad situation. That was a bad. Well, so, you know, there was this tug of war no, no, between no, no, the. Now no, no, let's have that discussion then. Yeah. Now, because as a Creole, you know, you you look more like the other people. Yes. You look more like yes, the white yes, people. Yes. Yes. There was a and, lot of problems. But with the that. people that are darker complexion, there's an issue because they say they don't know whether you black or white. Well, they thank you too much. And and a lot of black people thought Creoles thought they were better than them. Right. Now, some people did, probably. Some people did. And some Creoles didn't want to associate with darker-skinned people. But that wasn't the case for all of us. My mother and father went away to school. They had friends all of all colors, from all places, you know. So that wasn't an issue for them. My mother, when she died, she said she wanted to be buried by the Louisiana funeral home. Bobby Francois, who was the director there, he was a black man. Bobby's my friend, my fellow, I'm going to Chardonnay. <laughs> but uptown, okay. at, see, we had the privilege of being uptown and downtown Creoles because uptown was black people, downtown was Creoles. But the, there was a, a group of Creoles and black people that served the Creole community. Charity Hospital, I mean, Flint Goodrich Hospital was up there. A huge community. My grandfather was not a white-looking man. My grandmother was white, white, white-looking. I'll show you a picture of her. My grandfather was browner than I am, you know, but he helped longshoremen. He taught them how to save their money and buy houses. He was a pharmacist, but see those people, but he went to school at University of New Orleans during Reconstruction. There was a law school, there was a school of pharmacy, and there was a medical school. All that was available at that time? At that time. Started by the Protestant churches to, to educate black people. There were no professional schools in this community until 
NAACP and, and my dad and other lawyers started suing the state schools for uh, graduate programs. And then, of course, they started putting some graduate programs at Southern. I don't think, I don't think they put, well, I know they didn't put a law school at Grambling, but there was always animosity. And Claiborne Avenue, that was beautiful with all those big oak trees, that was our parade grounds for Mardi Gras. And you could go, Creole, go up to Canal Street and didn't go any further. <laughs> oh, no. Because... <laughs> Y'all couldn't go any further. No, well, we could, but but you'd be in trouble yeah, okay, with, with the black kids uptown. And my cousin got stabbed in his back one time because he they he crossed the line, and he and the kids jumped him, and he thought somebody punched him in his back, but they had stabbed him. Could we what we call the black people, the ones with darker complaints? Could they come through the Creole community? Some of them could, some of them could, but and and some of them. Well, you had Dilla there, so you had a lot of them coming. To, and, and they were black kids in our community. I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. I mean, it wasn't like whatever. But there was, and I didn't like that. I really did not like that because I said, white people are keeping us from in, being integrated and we're being prejudiced against other black people. We ought to form a, coalitions and stick together. Alliance and come together. Together. And my dad did that. He did that with uh, uh, Reverend A.L. Davis from uptown. They, they started these alliances together. Man, my father was organizing everybody. Everybody. And, and civic leagues. They started civic leagues together. Dr. Harden, Harden Park. You know Harden Park? No. no we'll, see, we'll see, that's downtown uh, right off of London Avenue. Dr. Harden looked like white. He was from Mississippi. He's black, but he looked like white. And uh, it was his daughter who married a friend in Philadelphia that I got to go to this camp with. And he was one of the richest Creoles in New Orleans. And he, it wasn't just because he was a doctor, but he bought houses, houses, property, property, property. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he owned that whole block, or a good part of it where Harden Park is. And when he, they were, we were advocating for a park where we could play and not have to play in the streets that weren't paved. And in the summertime, they used to, you know how, how, how they would surface the street? They'd come with, with uh, 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 shells, the small white oh, shells. Yeah, I that, yeah. And then they'd put tar on top of them. You couldn't play on that? Because well, we used to go barefoot. I mean, as soon as the summertime came, we'd be barefoot, man. Yeah, Take they, our, yeah they'd wear those shoes. They'd wear those oh, shoes. The, and the black tar. They come with these thick trucks with this, the pipes and the black tar. You bring all that stuff in the house, you get it on your clothes. So anyway, they advocated for parks, they advocated for sidewalks, and they formed this coalition. I'll show you a picture of the 7th Ward uh, Civic Improvement League. You would not believe the people who joined that. And they advertised what they were doing in the newspapers and stuff. They were formidable, and they weren't just advocating for Creoles, they were advocating for all black people. So I got to see uptown and downtown, black people, brown people, and I got to know some white people, because my father reached out to white people who wanted to help with the movement. Our household was like yeah, Grand you, Central Station, so you know. I mean, your, your, your dad was just, a, and mom, basically, both was activists in their community, for, for all, not just no. certain people. And they aligned themselves with other people who wanted to be a part of that lifestyle. And there were a lot of them. There, and there were a lot of them. Uh, now, when, you when you graduated from uh, Xavier in 
56 or 57? 57. 57. And where you end up staying in Louisiana or you moved out? Well, you know, I heard my mother say once, I wish my children would go to graduate school. I had an older sister, Sylvia, who was at Xavier, and she finished two years ahead of me. She got a job teaching school in Algiers. Beautiful girl, quiet, on the quiet side. Uh, she met a guy who had come down from Baltimore to visit. She eventually married him, and he, he, he looked like white. He was from a mixed-race family in Maryland, too. Theodore Patterson, and he was one of the first blacks to go to the University of Maryland Medical School. He'd be, he'd be sitting in class and saying, have you ever seen that, you seen that nigga yet? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and they lived, in, they lived in, on the Eastern Shore in Baltimore, but I heard my mom say once, I'd like my kids to go to graduate school. So I said, I'll go to grad school. I, I never said that to her. Okay. So I thought, now where do I want to go? I want to go to New York. <laughs> I want to go to New York, and uh, so and I like New York. We used to go there for conventions, and then my dad would, being the only boy, my dad would take me sometimes on if he had a business trip or he had a meeting with the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall, and some of those people. Uh, he would take me. My parents were avid travelers. My mom would say, if if my dad said, "Come on, we're going to go to Mobile, Alabama," oh, I'd be in the car before the kids. <laughs> She ready to go, huh? And Parliament, and then take somebody, bring a friend. I said, where are they going to sit? <laughs> are you going to get more people? Oh, that's right. You're all squeezing, squeezing. We all want family. Huh? Dr. Heidel, Sybil Moriel Heidel, and, and uh, he was going to a business conference in Detroit or someplace. And they had a big Cadillac. Now, we never had a big Cadillac. But it was Sybil, her sister Jean, her, her brother Cece, the cousin Verdon Art, and me. And Mrs. Heidel, they, why would they take me? Because that's the way they were. And we traveled all the way to Detroit. Dr. Heidel finished work like at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. He had dinner and he drove all night. And we were all sleeping on the back seat or on the floor of the car. It was a big old black Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> but plenty of space, huh? Plenty of space. Yeah. And we, we went to Detroit and then we morphed all the way around to New York. They dropped me off at my camp. We went to Coney Island. I mean, it was a wonderful way, and they weren't even relatives. They were just friends. They were just, it was this network that we had going for us. But anyway, I ended up, when I finished from Xavier, I, got, I went to Columbia University. Now, where is that? In New York City. It's one of the Ivy League schools. What, what, yeah. you, what you that was nine, I, I just went the following fall. Okay. I graduated 57 in June, and in, in, in uh, in fall, in the fall, I went September. Now, now, now you got now, now you got to have focus now. No, I didn't have a focus. <laughs> okay. But guess what happened? I, I had a trunk with all my stuff in it, so I thought, well, I don't want to ship the trunk. I'll go on a train. And I knew that train because that's the train I used to take to go to camp. But this time I had a sleeper. <laughs> you go big time now. Do, do you know when I got older going to camp, my father used to let me fly? I said, Dad, it's time now I can go on a plane. <laughs> you, he was flying? Yeah. One time I had a sleeper. And, uh, yeah, I was adventuresome. I was adventuresome. And one time uh, I was still sitting on the coach. Now, I had to be 11 or 12. And I had a seat by the window, always by the window. And this seat was empty. This young girl, young woman, kind of plump. She couldn't have been more than 19, had a hat on and gloves. 
beautiful brown-skinned woman, dark brown skin, but brown skin. She got on somewhere in Mississippi or something. She had a big basket of the best-smelling fried chicken I ever. <laughs> and she sat there, and she looked at me, and she almost, she didn't know what to do. She, what, she said, who are you with? So I said, I'm with anybody, I'm by myself. <laughs> How, how do you do this? She said, I never left home. So I said, well, what, where, you know, I introduced us. Where are you going? She said, I'm going to be a cook in Williamsburg. They hired me to come up there and be a cook. So she said, I've never been anywhere before. I'm scared to death. So I said, well, just relax. You don't have to do anything. You just sit here. I know the people that can come get you. They know you're coming, right? They'll come get you at the train station. They'll know who you are because there aren't too many of us on this train. <laughs> well, we got to, we got to uh, Atlanta or someplace, and the, the Black Pullman porters came, and they said, uh, we have a change in, plan, in, in plans. We're going to have to get off this train, and we're going to have to wait in the train station for a few hours because they're going to hook us up to another engine. So you're going to have to get off this train, and then we'll reboard in two or three hours. So I said, okay. So I said, well, where do we go? He said, oh, you can go in the waiting room. So I said, which one? He said, well, which one do you think you got to go in? <laughs> I, said, I ain't going in no black waiting room. So I said, okay. So we got off the train, and I looked at the black waiting room. It was a hellhole. It was dirty. It had benches that were just, you know, wooden a stinky toilet in the corner. And I said to her, come with me. If anybody asks you a question, you tell them you're taking care of me. <laughs> we sat in the, wa the white waiting room. We sat in the white waiting room. Nobody, nobody bothered, bothered her. I said, you're my, you're, you're my maid. You're taking care of me. Because you was like a little child. And she... I was dressed. I had a shirt and tie. <laughs> Okay. She was dressed too. She was dressed nicely, but she was scared to death. And I thought, you know, it's, it's, she should have been, somebody should have explained to her or helped teach her what, so forth and so on. But that's to deliver her family. No, to, no, the right. Same predicament. Yeah. So yeah. she's one of the first ones to leave, probably leave out that community. That's what's going on to this day. But see, that, that's what, what helped me wanted to be a teacher, so that people wouldn't have to feel inferior or dependent or uninformed or uninformed. And so I, I never forgot that, that this, this, and she was probably very bright and probably very good at what she did. And I hope she had a great life. But, but as a child, you assisted her. Yes. Because because I had had totally she, different experiences. Right. And she just and that's that's what's going on in our in our community now, lack of exposure. Yeah. And and lack of those of us who are educated to reach, reach down, right. and help others. Because I know what they say. I ain't worried about them niggas. Right. You know. Right. You know. Right. I got mine. They don't. You know. And I had teachers like that too. Not at Jones School, but in other places. I got mine, now you got to get yours. Now, now, when you arrived to Columbus, what was it like? Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I, did, I applied to Columbia and I got accepted. And uh, I was applying to go to get a degree in education. Now, integration is still... Uh, this is, is, still this is 1957. 
So segregation. Yeah. Segregation oh, no. still exists. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. So, so you're moving to another state. Now you know you have to understand. You've traveled. Uh, people talk about going, you know, north and everything, and everything's not wide open. Because I because I remember when when traveling to some cities, you couldn't go to the big white hotels, even though. Things like on the buses and so forth weren't segregated, but some of the other places you get there, or now they wouldn't tell you we don't have room for you because you're black. They say we booked up, you know, or whatever, you know. So anyway, uh, but I got to Columbia, and when I was on the train, uh, it was a white girl, because I had a I had a, a sleeper, and she was sitting near me or something. She said, where are you going? So I said, I'm going to Columbia. Oh, she said, I've been to school there. She said, and blah, blah, blah. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm going to ask, see what kind of scholarships are around. Or, I don't know. I'm just maybe general studies to start with, but I want to get a master's, you know, and I, and I want to do it in two semesters. Ooh, you you know, had that and I don't want to write a thesis. <laughs> So she said, well, So you go, you go to college, you go to grad school, you're going to write your own rules, though. Huh? I got to find a program. I'm not writing any fees because nobody reads those things anyway. It's a waste of time. So she said, well, you know, there's a new program the federal government's just starting. And, it, and I said, but I like working with kids and I like teaching and I like work with handicapped people. She said, well, there's a new program the federal government's just starting because of the veterans coming back from the war. And they're looking for people to do counseling with, with disabled veterans. She told me who to see at Columbia. I went to see this guy when I got to Columbia. And I got full paid scholarship to go to Columbia, and I got an allowance. So they paid all of my tuition, and I got a stipend for like $150 a month or whatever. And in two semesters, I got my master's degree. I worked at, I had to do an internship at the Bronx VA Hospital. And my job was to counsel disabled veterans to help them understand their disability, to be an intermediary between the therapists, the doctors, and the prosthetic people who were building, uh, you know, amputees, legs, legs and arms, but to counsel them and to help them try to figure out how they were going to adjust to their disability and uh, worked at Bronx VA Hospital, which was not far from Columbia. When I got to Columbia, I met a, an Indian man from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, Elmo Korn, who was in his 50s, and a Jewish fellow named Jerry Fine, who was like in his 30s. I was 21. So the three of us, we were in the same program. They had the same scholarship offers. One lived in New York City. Elmo's family lived in Wisconsin, uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. He had two boys, and I lived in the dorm. Elmo and I lived in the dorm at Columbia. And so we became a study group. And the worst course we had was statistics, but we got through it. And so when graduation time came, the guy at Columbia, the professor at Columbia who was in charge of this program said, you know, you all did very well, and I want to expand the number of uh, uh, scholarships we get. We only had five or six this year. I'd like to double that to 12. And I wrote and told them that they need to publicize this program, which is a new federal program, to attract veterans counselors and, and expand the program. 
would you three be willing to go to Washington to be a poster boys for this new program and publicity? They want to run, bring you suits and, suits and ties so they take nice pictures of you and they tell your story and so forth and they can use that as publicity. So I said, yeah, they, they deserve that. They paid for all of this, so we'll go to Washington. So we went as guests to Washington <laughs> to the uh, Department of, of Veterans Affairs. This came under Veterans Administration. And they toured us around, took pictures, took our stories, and we were there for two days. Then they said, well, we're going to give you exit interviews, and we're going to offer you a position at the end of the exit interview. So you'll have a job when you, when you leave here, you'll have a job. Now, who, who made that offer to you, the people at the veteran VA place? Yeah, so the, we, we had someone who was assigned to this project to take care of us, take the pictures, he worked for the Veterans Administration uh, to tell us all about what they wanted us to do and get our stories right and so forth. I, I never saw all the publicity stuff. I'll tell you why. So anyway, so uh, <clears throat> Elmo came out. We, we were sitting in this big plush office uh, near the White House and so forth, government office building. Elmo Coin said, man, I got a job in Wisconsin near where I live. said, there's VA hospital there. I am so happy. He was a high school teacher. And he had two boys. He said, and I'm, I'm making more money, and I'm going to get better benefits. I said, I'm so happy for you. He was the nicest man. Um, and then Jerry came back. He said, yeah, they offered me a job where we did our internship because he lived in the Bronx. And he said, the hospital, I can walk home from the hospital. So I, they left me for last. So the guy, I went in, he says, uh, Mr. Turo, are you... Uh, where, where, do you, where do you want to live? Where, where are you going? We have vacancies in different places of the country. So I said, I want to go back to New Orleans. Now, what I had discovered was I did not want to be that, I didn't, want, I didn't like the work. I did not like, I didn't like it. I didn't like working for, for the VA hospital. I didn't like the internship. I did it, and I did my best. I thought, you know, this is not what I want to do. And I remember my dad said, don't do it if you don't want to do it. But what about the VA? Well, so I told the guy, I said, oh, I got to go to New Orleans. So he said, oh, Mr. Turo, he said, I think that's going to be a problem. So I said, why? He said, because they will not accept a black counselor because you're going to be counseling white veterans. And they don't want, they don't have any black employees. So I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, if you don't want to go to New Orleans, I know you signed a contract when you accepted the scholarship that you would have to work for three years before you could give up the position to pay back the government for the money they invested in you. But we're going to write you off. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> you go home. You don't owe us any money. You don't owe us anything. No. And I said to myself, Thank goodness. So I said, well, listen, I, I want to tell you something. I appreciate everything you guys have done. And I do have, I've had a good education. And I made friends at Columbia to work with handicapped children. And they have hooked me up with some people in New York City and in the state education department to work with handicapped kids in public schools. And I've taken you had one or two courses you could take as an elective. I've taken some of those courses. So I was kind of feeling my way into another field. So he said, well, well, that's good. He said, I'm really sorry we can't offer you a job. He's having great jobs in California. Don't you agree? Well, I had no point. I didn't want to go back to New Orleans either. 
But I, I knew something was coming up about racial integration. And I knew that was going because I, I, I really would have been unhappy working for them for three years. So I never had to pay them off. That was it. So, but that made the decision quite easier, too, to stay yeah, in Yeah, and, and I didn't, it wasn't like, I just wasn't going to be happy doing that. But it was know. expensive to live in New York on your own, though. Well, I didn't. I, I did go back, and I had a job at uh, uh, teaching. Uh, Dutch Morial's brother, Walter Morial, uh, was a principal, and I knew him. He had an MBA, and he was a principal of an elementary school here because he couldn't get a job as an MBA, as an accountant. And you could take, he could take a, num, a column of figures and go brrrr, and give you the total. So Walter Morial, he said, come on, you can come teach Lockett School in the Ninth Ward. So I went there. And then the war was still going on, and I was going to be drafted. What, what war? What was that, Vietnam? Vietnam War? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, or was it Korea? And which one came first? I would guess it was one or the other. The Korean War came first. Well, it must have. Been. It was fifty-seven. It was nineteen fifty-seven. So anyway, I, I stayed there for a few months, and I was going to be drafted. So then I, I volunteered for the Army Reserve, and I went to Arkansas for six months, and then came back, and then I left and uh, went to work in Washington and. <clears throat> and then came back and got married and went to New York. Oh, what, did, what did you do in Washington? I taught school for a year, and I asked for a ghetto school. You asked for what? Yeah. I said, I'll teach in a ghetto school. What, what prompted that? Well, I just wanted to be with kids who really needed, your needed, needed really good instruction and caring and nurturing. And boy, that school, we didn't even have a principal. The school didn't have a principal? No, there was a school for whites a few blocks away, and the guy would come over every now and then, make sure we're still alive. <laughs> yeah, but this, this round and This is Washington, D.C. This is 1957-58. Yeah, and, and, uh, well, and, well, and I hated the job because they didn't have paper and pencils for the kids. I'd have to buy a lot of the stuff myself. Public school, public school. I knew all the paint in that building was, was lead-based lead paint and I covered the walls with the kids' artwork. So I thought, you know what, I can't do this. I mean, I want to teach, but I'm going to find a place that has good schools, has black kids and white kids. I got a job offered to teach in White Plains. They were starting a program. The federal government had just passed a law that handicapped kids could stay in school till they were 21. And uh, I got a job at White Plains High School, wealthy community, at a black community that was basically a, a people who served the white, rich white people. You know, J.C. Penney had a 28-acre estate with olive groves on it and everything, and rich people that owned the New York Times had estates there and all of that, and they had built this beautiful new high school. This high school had a driver training course on the grounds with the street and traffic lights. <laughs> In the 50s? In the 50s. So and that, that, that and did, I was one of the first black teachers in the high school. That, that did, did you, to be honest, that, did you feel I, I have arrived? My mom and dad No, not, not, not arrived. I was, on, I was on the right path. I was on the right path. And, and uh, my, I was married. My wife, my wife. Uh, what's, what's your wife's name? Faye. Faye Darrensburg from Baton Rouge. She had been. Darrensburg. Yeah, she's a Darrensburg. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So your wife is from Baton Rouge. My, my wife is from Baton Rouge. Do you have children? I have two grown sons and two grandkids. Okay. Yeah. What was your son's name? 
Andrew and Alex. Uh, no, Andrew and, and Alex. Alex is the, the third. He's my oldest son, and Andrew's my youngest son. That we all live together and, I mean, near each other. Okay, now Alex is your middle name. No, Alex Alexander is my is first friend. name. Alexander, Alexander Pierre is, is my is my name, and and I named my son Alexander. He's the third. Oh, okay. That's and that's all of AP. my kids, all of my kids, and all my grandkids have APT as their initials. <laughs> what? what my, my my granddaughter is Amanda Page Turo. My grandson is Andrew Philip Turo. So they all have APT. So, so you made a conscious effort to do that. Honoring my dad. Yeah, dad. honoring my dad. That, that's powerful. You know. That's powerful. So, I mean, why not? Because that's their heritage. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and they, but are they, do they do any study or research about their grandfather? Oh, yeah. They're very proud of all that. My grandson is graduating in May from did, University did they, did of they Connecticut. Did they have a chance to meet him? Who's that? No, he, he was dead before they were born. My grandson is graduating from University of Connecticut in May, it's very soon. And he's an, a finishing engineering, and he's already got a job. <laughs> oh, in New York City. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and my granddaughter's at University of South Carolina in an honors program, and she wants to be a lawyer. And my youngest son is a lawyer. He's the only lawyer in the family. The only one. Yeah. The great AP Turo only have one lawyer. Well, only family. one in the family. N none of my sisters had children who wanted to be lawyers. But we had a family reunion. I showed you that picture. Yeah, you did. Well, with, the, with 110 of us, yeah. That was a beautiful picture. But two years ago, I wasn't here. I was at home in Connecticut. And uh, do you know Mark Raymond, who's, uh, who's head of the RTA? He, yeah, I know, I know he's Mark, a commissioner. I know his dad, well, Mark, Mark Sr., I know well, Rhonda. Tomorrow. Well, they're all related to me, okay. you know. You know, Mark is my great nephew. Rhonda is my niece. Okay. And... Uh, uh, Catherine is, is, is their daughter. And Mark just got a major appointment. He, ju he was just appointed RTA commissioner. You know, they don't pay him any money, you know. That's all. That's all. Just, just, yeah. a, just a good position. And, but he's good and he likes that and, and he's, he's smart. And uh, he has also this uh, 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 split second foundation right. for people with uh, spinal cord injuries. And it's wonderful that he's done that. And uh, yeah, Mark is, uh, Mark is incredible. And he's president, he volunteered, he's president of the AP Turo Legacy Committee. You know, we have a family legacy committee to honor my father's uh, legacy. We're not, we don't give money and all that because we don't raise money, but we lend our name and our effort to help continue the fight for equity and integration and civil rights. With your dad's too. Yeah, dad yeah. yeah, and and you know, using people's names that have recognition help people get things done. You know, so so we do that. But Mark and Rhonda, yeah, they're all good they're all good. Rhonda's amazing, uh, and so is Mark Senior and so is Mark Junior and then they have a daughter, Catherine, and she lives she lives in uh, in Houston. And she's married to a guy from North Louisiana. Yeah, I know that family. It's a beautiful family. I met them through Kathy Hambrick. Oh, my goodness, yeah. yeah. Well, Kathy's cousin to Mark Sr. All right, okay, then. And that's how I met Kathy. And Kathy was the one who called me when she knew that I was related to, to that I, you know, that when, when, when Rhonda and, and Mark got married, Kathy was uh, in California and her dad died. They were at a funeral home in Convent. 
and she came for her dad's funeral, and she began to go to visit these plantations, and she said, nobody ever talked about the slaves. Oh, well, they were just slaves. I would say, yeah, but where'd they come from? What did they do? What tribe were they a part of? Oh, we don't know any of that. They were just slaves. <laughs> and she got a place, started the museum at, uh, at Tuscuco Plantation, which is, see, that's where my family started. Those two rows were white French people. That's where I came from. That's Tuscoco where my, and Bagatelle, and Whitehall, and, and Union, all of them. And off, the, I, off the river road. Right there in Convent, in St. James and Ascension Parish. And I have been to those plantations. We have had book talks at those plantations. I have slept in that house in that big tester bed. And I have had white cousins who were relatives of the white two rows. And I have had black people call me and say, I'm part of the black two-row family because one of the two-row boys had sex with a slave that was my great-grandmother's. So uh, anyway, it's, that history is, you, you have to read my book. I'm going to have to. I can't read. <laughs> Took me 12 years to write that book. I, I did. I, I did glance through it. Yeah, but back. most people don't want to, you know, read it. But you, you'll enjoy it now that you've met me. But also, I, I, I told you I met you years ago when they first brought you back to, to tell, LSU. Tell, tell us how that how that happened. How, how did they find you? Well, you know, you know, uh, this week, uh, some of the people who started that black chap, Joyce was the one who found me. I'll what, tell you that story. Joyce Jackson. Joyce. Jackson. Okay. The people that started the AP Toro Black Alumni chapter in 1988 uh, are all retired now mm. and successful. I don't know if you know Leo Hamilton in yeah, Baton Rouge. Leo. Leo is yes. solid gold. Good solid, man. and you know man. he's. And his he's wife, and his oh, wife and Gwen. Gwen. Oh, Gwen my Gwen goodness. Gwen. See, you know all the people I know. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway. I was, I was a part of it. I was here two weeks ago, about two and a half weeks ago, because I was coming from Sarasota, where we go for the winter. And my, my granddaughter, she was having her spring break from University of South Carolina. I said, Grandpa, why don't you come to New Orleans from Sarasota instead of just driving right back? to Connecticut, and I can come down and spend my spring break with you. Oh, that was nice. She said, so I can, because they don't know all of our family down here because they haven't spent enough time down here. So I said, okay, I'll come. Well, she, she had a great time. Well, anyway, when LSU decided to give me this uh, Hall of Distinction thing, Brian Jackson, whose father went to Xavier Jewish with me. Jewish Brian Jackson? Uh, no, uh, Brian is Brian is the uh, middle district court judge here in Bat well in Baton Rouge. Yeah, the federal. Yes. That's what I say, Judge Brian Jackson. You know him? Yes. Well, he's a, his dad was a buddy of mine. Oh, right his dad there. just died. Oh, sorry his to hear that, Brian. Anyway, he went to Xavier with with me, okay. and uh, he was in pharmacy, and uh, we called him Tuffy, the, the dad. Okay. And his father was a farmer. And in the junior year, they didn't have enough money to continue him in school, and he had to withdraw. So he got a job in the post office, and get what he got. The father got to be a postmaster. I mean, he he moved up the Excelled. ranks, okay. and his son Brian is is the judge. Well, Brian's younger than I'm. Brian's only like early sixties. I'm eighty. Was it Brian that old? Yeah. I'm eighty-seven. So Brian only knew me as one of his father's friends. So. Oh, I guess about seven, eight years ago, Brian called me. Now, I never met Brian, called me. You, you know my dad, Tuffy, I, I know your dad. Yeah, he's a great guy, I know that. 
So, and uh, he said, well, I'm the judge of that. I said, well, that's wonderful. I want you to come down and do a book talk with my, for, I'm, I'm the uh, presiding chief justice for six years. And I, and I do a Black History Month thing every year, and I want you to be the keynote speaker and so forth. So I said, oh, I would love to do it. I came down. He, they treated me like great. And with me on the program was the guy who was the public relations director. Ah, fabulous guy from Zulus. I can't remember his name now. Big, tall guy. And I have his name. He said, if you want, ever want anything from the Zulus or you want any tickets or anything, you just call me. So we had this whole, he, he was part of the program. Because Brian said, you know, people think all the Zulus do is have a parade and a ball, but they do a lot of good work for people. And now they have money and funds and stuff like that. But Leo and Brian, and I don't know if you know Perry, Shab uh, Perry uh, Franklin in Baton Rouge. No Perry, no Brother Perry. <laughs> well, I know Perry's dad. <laughs> okay, then. Percy. I know, because Perry, Perry, I don't know why he don't want me to interview his dad. His dad got a lot of rich history <laughs> that, that Brother Perry uh, has been keeping from us. So, okay, Perry, you have I to tell to, me I about that. your dad, Perry. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, Brian, 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 uh, when I was here for that trip, I had been promising Brian we'd go out to dinner. And we went out to dinner, at, uh, and Brian said, you know what, we're going to have a party for you when you come down for this thing. I said, Brian, don't do that. People have enough stuff to do. He said, no, I'm going to call Leo and Perry, and we're going to call your friends, and we're going to call all those people who were part of that original chapter that they started in 1988. He said, I'm, I'm, I wasn't a part of that. I was too young, but Leo and Joyce and, uh, and Rachel Emanuel. Ra Rachel Mamie Haynes. Mamie Haynes. Hall. Hall Haynes. Oh, no. the, the woman is Mary Haynes. Mary Haynes. No, it's Mary, Mamie Haynes. Mary, no, Mamie Hall, Mary Haynes. I think Mary well, Haynes. Anyway, she, she said she just had hip surgery, so she oh, couldn't come. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so guess where they had the club, the thing? They had it at the city club. <laughs> Downtown? <laughs> that's Leo's club. Oh, that's Leo's spot there, huh? We had the nicest time. Okay. And that was, that was just a few days ago. And they were there. Leo was there. He's doing well. You know, he's on the walk yeah, now. Yeah, he had some surgery. Serious yeah, surgery. He, but he, he looks good. He's yeah. doing well. And Brian was there with his mom. His dad, just, his dad just died two weeks ago. So I called him when I was home in Connecticut. And I said, look, you don't have to do this party. You, you need to mourn your dad. You know, this is not time for you to be planning a party. He said, no. My dad had a great life. His dad was 90, late 90s. No, he wasn't 90. He wasn't quite 90. He, but he, 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 was, he was my age, more or less, okay. more or less. Yeah, but he said when he called uh, uh, the, the guy, Xavier, who's, who's president, Verrett, he said, because he didn't know Brian and he didn't know his father, he said, Dr. Verrett, I went to Xavier, my sister went to Xavier, my brother went to Xavier. And I want to use the chapel as Xavier for my father's funeral. And, and but I said, wonderful, you, you can have the chapel. We'd be happy to have you there. And you know what he told me? His, his father never graduated from Xavier because he left in his junior year. And I, he said to his dad once, you have any regrets about life? He said, you know, the biggest regret I have is that I never finished from Xavier. Mm. Barrett gave him an honorary Honor. degree. That was powerful. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, I said, now that's, that's the kind of stuff we that's need to end. do. Oh, that's a wonderful image. You know, that's the kind of stuff we need to do. We don't do enough of it. For each other. Right? 
So, and when he told me that, oh, I had tears in my eyes. But so that, you, you know, there's so much history here. Oh, it just it's like your story. Your story encompassed so many others. You don't you don't went all around Louisiana just that quick. And you know what? What I say to people, and I said this the other night, and I say it again. All of the things that have happened to me at LSU and in Baton Rouge, because I didn't know any, I mean, I knew a few of my father's friends in Baton Rouge and uh, so forth, but I never socialized with a whole lot of kids. I didn't, I had too much to do here, you know, mm -hmm. so forth and so All the stuff that has happened to me at LSU and in Baton Rouge and around the country with the book and the, and the documentary and being honored for being the first black and all, I never asked for any of that. All of that started with Leo, Mamie, Rachel, Joyce. Mm -hmm. Joyce called me in 1988. And she said, you, remember the, you good, baby. You remember the she year. said, I, I'm Joyce Jackson. I said, well, great. That's great. She said, I'm a graduate of, they were graduates. Said, I'm a graduate. Of, we're starting a black alumni chapter. That's great. <laughs> and we're going to name it for your dad because he sued them 13 times. And we're going to name it the AP Turo Black Alumni Chapter. And I, I said, that's wonderful. We want you to come down. We're going to have a three or four day celebration. I'm not coming down. No, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. no. I said, don't, don't pull me in this. I said, Joyce, I am so proud of you guys, but I have to tell you, I have never been on that campus since for 35 years. 35 years have passed. I have never been on that campus. And I come to Baton Rouge to visit my friends and my wife's family. And you don't go in that direction. I'll go around the school. I'll go around the whole LSU. I would never go back on that campus. I hate it. You know the bell tower, the clabong. That was like a death call to me. I hated it. I hated the sound. It was, it was a bad time. So I said, Joyce, thank you so much. But she said, no, you, you got to come. You have, and you know how Joyce is. Joyce's not going to take no for an answer. And I just, but she's a fighter. And you know what? I just... I fell in love with what she told me, you know, like, you got to come. You're not coming for them. You come in for us, and you come in for your dad, and you come in for all the people that have to come. Ooh, that was powerful. That's powerful, she right? wait on your show. <laughs> and I said, That's what you stood for, right? I said, okay, I'm coming. That's what you stood for. Yeah, That's what you've been yeah, searching for yeah. all of you. Now, I didn't go there to be the cheerleader. Right. I went there for me, but it didn't work out. But maybe I can help it be good for some people. So they treated me like... Like royalty. Like a king. Yeah, I mean, that was big. And it was three or four days, and it was wonderful. And from that moment on, see, it's been 70 years since I went to LSU. It's 70 years. 35, I hated it. It's like, because you started in 53, it's, 19, it's 23 and, now. Yeah, and this is midway. I mean, to, this year, when I spoke... To, the other night at LSU, I said to people, this is the middle of my journey. Chapter one was never come back here again for 35 years. Chapter two is, I love this place for 35 <laughs> years and I'm back. And now look what you've given me. And I never asked for any of this. I never asked anybody, nominate me, do this for me. No, people have come to me and said, we want you to be a part of this, but it's not for me. This is not for me, this is for everybody. It's for the white people, it's, and it's for the black people, and also it's for people who are part of other groups that need to be included, because we need, it needs to be for everybody. 
I wonder. But you live long enough to see this day. Yes. You live long. I wonder how many people that are still living that was antagonized you or was a part of that system in '53 when you were there. Well, let yeah. me tell you what happened. Well, one of the one one morning, I was so upset when I was at LSU. It was like four or five o'clock in the morning. It was October, and it was foggy and misty, and it was. I just came out of the dorm, and where the entrance was to my section of the stadium was Mike's cage. And it, you know, it wasn't much bigger than this area. It had a small pool in it, and there was a bench near. But I used to go out there and talk to Mike. And I'm sitting there, and I said, you know, this, this Mike, you're in jail, I'm in jail, we're both in jail, we're both in prison. You can't get out of your cage and I can't get out of this place. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I saw this pickup truck parked near the curb. Now people had told me, you know, you may not be safe here because, you know, this open campus and there are a lot of crazy people around here. And so I said, well, I can't hide. I mean, I have to go to class. I got to go eat in a dorm in another building. So I thought, well, if there's somebody looking for me in a pickup truck, I'm here. I'm sitting here. So, and I'm not running away. Out of the truck comes a black man, farmer with his bib overalls on. And he said, are you AP? I said, he said, wait, just sit. You're not going anywhere, right? I said, no. He said, wait, just sit right there. I'll be right back. He comes back with his son, who's about this big. He had been sleeping on the seat of the truck. He said, we've been looking for you on campus. I come by here, I've been by here several times, trying to find you. I want him to see you here, to know that it's possible for him to come to this school. This this man and, and having his son with him, the fine, looking for you. And you know what? I thought to myself, I didn't say it to him, but I thought that's the worst thing that happened to me. <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to I'm trying to get out of here. You on your way out? Oh, no, I'm trying to get out. I'm, I'm about to get this kid to a bike. <laughs> but you know, it said you can't leave. You 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 can't. That kid needs to know he can come here because of you. If I leave, what does that say to him? That puts more responsibility on me. What do I do? What do I do? You know the conflicts I felt? How conflicted I was? I've never forgotten that. So when my dad told me I could go, I was saved. I, I, I was saved. Imagine at 17 years old having all of those responsibilities thrust on you. Now somebody said, well, you, you shouldn't have volunteered. <laughs> I said, well, I, but I, I wasn't thinking that way. I thought I, it would work. I thought it would work. It's different. And I'll and I tell you why I thought it would work, because it's the best deal for the money. And I know that I, I wasn't worried that my parents couldn't afford it. I just thought, why should I expand their burden. Also, I wanted something different. I was adventuresome too. I have to say that. 
And I thought, it'd be a great adventure. <laughs> not, not to be the first black, but to be, uh -huh. look, you go from LSU at that time to Southern. You know what that was like? Okay. I mean, come on. And you know, people, people would see me in the neighborhood or when I'd go home or in Baton Rouge and, oh man, oh man, keep it up. Keep, you don't know what pain I'm having. Whoa. You know, you don't know what pain I'm having, you know. I said to my dad, you know, whatever you all do, when I left, whatever you do, you can't send any one person back here. You got to send a group of people back here. You got to send a whole bunch they need to support of people. Yeah, yeah. And, but you got to help support people inside the organization. Who do they talk to? Who are the adults that they talk to? Now, you know, even, even a few years ago, there weren't that many black people on faculty. You had Dr. Durant and a few others, and Isaiah uh, Warren, 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 you know, in science and so forth. But there weren't very many pe black people there, so black kids never saw a lot of black faces. And, and when Freya went, that was 10 years later. That was the first group. They integrated the school. I desegregated it, but they integrated. Right. But they suffered more than I did. And Freya left, left too. They, nobody bothered me physically. Nobody said, you so-and-so get out of here. What? Nobody confronted me. It was all behind the scenes. So I, I never felt threatened that way. And that's the worst kind, because you, you assume it's going to be all right. Yeah, but just think of people threatening you. And Freya said, spitting at yeah. you and, and uh, driving like they're going to drive up on the curb, up on the sidewalk. Their head, car would be heading up. There was a young black couple who were in the grad, she was gorgeous. She was in the school of drama or music and she was pregnant. They were a young couple married and they were living in the Quonset huts that they had in the back part of the campus like that they had got as army surplus for, for married couples okay. or whatever. And he was in English or something and they came to my dorm door and knocked on the door. Yes. We came to see you and opened the door. Two black people said, <laughs> I said, oh, my Lord, God, good. so good to see you. They said, well, come on, we're taking you out to dinner or something, you know. And, and they were students there in graduate school, and she was pregnant. And I saw them two or three times. They were wonderful. She was gorgeous. That, that was the only, only, only other She said, you saw. know what? You don't know what I, she said, my husband gets called black and blah, 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 but she said, you should hear what comes my way. You're having a gorilla. Mm -hmm. You're having a this, that, and the other. Yeah, da, 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 She said, you know what I do? I carry, I carry a pair of scissors in my purse in case I have this baby somewhere on campus and nobody's going to help me and I have to cut the, the umbilical cord the, myself. Oh. If I have to cut the umbilical cord myself. That's a strong woman. I said, girl, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> strong woman. Whoa. That's, that's who we are. I said, you know what? I, and, you know, that kind of uplifted me for a few, but I never, and I, you know, the, the worst part is I should have take, taken their names down and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But you're 17 years old, you know, you just, just going but, through But she was gorgeous. I bet she had a beautiful baby. <laughs> but, you know, I was having all these experiences were just incredible. I mean, I grew up 
at 17. Now, I, I was pretty mature at 17 from having to travel, travel and do, yes, yes. but I, I tell people I grew up a lot in those 55 days. My mom told me once, she said, you know, somebody called me and told me that somebody had been arrested because he was carrying a knife looking for you. So she said, I didn't, my, my father said, no, we don't share that with you. I mean, we, my mom wanted to, my dad said, no, why are you going to tell him that? They're going to be looking over his shoulder all day long, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I said, yeah, but, you know. So well, Mother, she, you know, she wanted to protect you. So. When Rachel Emanuel interviewed my mom to do the documentary, she said, my mom just cried like a baby. <laughs> and my mom was strong, I mean, because, you know, but. So I, I said, you know what? I, but it was it was an incredible journey. But I want to tell you this. Uh, Rhonda called me. I guess it's been a little bit over two years. And she said to me, uh, "I'm in Connecticut." She said to me, uh, "Uncle AP, are you sitting down?" So I said, "Oh Lord, don't tell me somebody died." <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I said, "Oh, no, Rhonda, not not bad, sad news, right?" No, she said, "I got very interesting, exciting news for you." She said, "Guess what happened?" Two women called me, two white women called me, that are grandchildren of our father's sisters who left the family. And they've been looking for us for 10 years. And they think, and they're very sure that we are their family. And that their grandmother, Corinne, who was my father's sister, lived at Carlton and Canal Street all of her life. And they grew up with their grandmother. Their mother and father lived nearby, but they loved Corinne, their grandmother. She was the apple of their eye. I said, you got to be kidding me. She said, no. One lives in Houston, and her name is Alice Smith, and the other one is named for her grandmother, and her name is Corinne Jones. Alice Jones and Corinne Smith, right? Something like that. So I said, what? She said, yeah, and one, you know, they're, they're mature women, and they have grandchildren, but they're, they're not old, old ladies, you know. And they want to meet everybody, and we're going to meet some of them in New Orleans in, in a few days. And uh, I said, well, I'm not, I'm not coming down, but you all take pictures and stuff, you know, and I'd love to get to meet them and talk to them. And she said, and, and oh, they're so excited. She said, you know, uh, they found us through a classmate who had a friend, da-da-da-da-da, in one of the private schools they went to. And they grew up with their family, and uh, we have become the best of friends. And they were the ones who helped organize the family reunion. And they grew up in New Orleans? They grew up in New Orleans at Canal and Carlton with their grandmother. And the grandmother's buried in Metairie Cemetery, and we have the huge tombstone. And she spelled their name, they spelled their name T-O-U-R-O, -O, which was like Turo Infirmary, but that's a Jewish name. So, so when I, once I got to know them, I said, did you all think you were Jewish? She said, well, we thought, well, maybe we're Jewish. So I said, you all, your grandmother went from being black, Creole, to using a Jewish name. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, we'd say to my grandmother, Grandma, where'd you go to school? Oh, you don't want to know that, you know. 
and none of them drove a car because they, ne they never had driver's license. That, well, one did drive a car. They lived, the other three, one married a guy from uh, Guatemala and had two children, two girls. Uh, another one lived in uh, Chicago and uh, married into an Eastern European family named Lipinski. And uh, another one lived in, uh, I think, Minnesota, Louise. And uh, there was one more, uh, Louise. That's four. So we have been putting all this stuff together, and what we have learned, and I'll show you pictures of them, what we have learned is that my father and all of his siblings, although they destroyed all of the pictures that they had of the four girls, uh, kept in touch with each other. And my Aunt Victoria, who lived in New Orleans, uh, would visit them, the one who lived in New Orleans, and they kept in touch with her. And now my grandmother, it's, this is in the book, uh, because I found, before I wrote the book, I, I, I was told certain things about who they were and that they existed, but we never knew that we could find them. That w when my grandmother died, was sick with cancer and living in the half of the house with my father and mother, those four women came to visit their mother, and they had a, a Model T Ford, and she had a garage under the basement of the house. They opened the garage doors, parked their car in the basement, closed the doors, and never went out for the whole four days they were there. And then when they left, they got in their car, opened the doors, and went out so nobody could see them. And one of them had a car, I think it was Louise, and they came to see her. Uh, do the children? They look like full-blown. Uh, well, they they all they all look white. I mean, the the grandchildren that they have. It's it's been and at this reunion, uh, I invited I invited Rachel, I invited a gal who did the genealogy because when I had my genealogy done, my father never talked about. I said to my dad, "Where, where'd you come from?" He said, "Well." We, we came from up in the country, but uh, they, we weren't slaves. So I said, what? He said, oh, no, we weren't. I said, well, I must be white. <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, we were judges and, and uh, surveyors and stuff like that. I said, Dad, come on. You're not gonna... Well, he, he, was true. he was right. The first Turo who came to this country from France became a judge, but he married into a white family called the Brangers that were the richest, one of the richest families in Louisiana. He married Betsy Branger when she was 14, and he was in his 30s, and they had eight children, and his oldest son was uh, uh, the same name, Augustine Marius Branger, who had a relationship with a slave woman that belonged to his mother-in-law mother named Louis, uh, 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 what was her name? Josephine Mather. They lived on the Mather plantation. And she was also, Josephine was the, the daughter of the master of the plantation. He had, he had had sex with Josephine's mother, who was named Elite. Well, I, I, I got a researcher uh, who was studying uh, uh, at LSU. Her name was uh, uh, Lee Loomis was her name. And uh, she was a young white woman who spoke, read, write French. She knew all about how to research all of those black books where they kept all the slave uh, 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 names and stuff. 
And, uh, but she was from New Orleans, and uh, we agreed on how much I would have to pay her, and she did fabulous research. And then she said to me, your father, I've checked the census. I knew when they were born. I knew the years they were born. I knew their names. Now, if you want me to, I can find them. Or I can find out what happened to them. Because I work internationally. And I'm president, a vice president of the Archivist Association. I'm off to Paris next week, or I'm going to, to uh, you know, places in Europe, or, or in Dubai, or whatever, international conference. So I said, no. I said, Lee, and we got to be friends. I said, Lee, this is where I think. When people do things like that, they're entitled to privacy. And if they or their ancestors ever want to find us, they'll find us. Because the Turo name is not hidden. It's out there. So if you want to know, if you say Turo in New Orleans and you type it in, you'll see mostly AP Turo. But there are white Turo's. You can, you can see it. You, you, you can see them. You can see the branches and all that. Now, the, the sad part is we don't teach anybody that history. It's all secretive. Right. Now, now be, before uh, the, the, the AP Turo chapter of LSU brought you here, were you interested in finding your, uh, searching your history? I, oh, I, I did, to write the book. See, what happened was <clears throat> uh, Rachel and, and Joyce and Leo and that crowd, when they had the Black Alumni chapter, uh, they said to, now, now you got to remember, th this is in 1988, before there was all this Black Lives Matter stuff. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter has changed a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> so... Uh, they said to the leadership at LSU, who they weren't all that friendly to the black chapter. They said, you don't have to call it a black chapter. <laughs> Just call it the AP Turo alumni chapter. Uh-uh. We want AP Turo black alumni chapter. I said, well, you stick to your guns. See, that's where white people are. They want to hide all this stuff, you know. So anyway, so they kept the name. So uh, <clears throat> what they said to uh, to the... Board of Supervisors, you don't have one building on this campus named for a black person. We want a building named for a black person. So they said, all right, we've got a building that we built, classroom building. Uh, we'll let you decide. We don't want to pick a name because if we pick a name, then you'll be ang angry with us. You, you, you all do a survey and you come up with a name. It's got to be Turo. He sued this place 13 times. None of us would be here. <laughs> So, my mom was in a wheelchair. My mom woke up one morning, and she couldn't walk. She had a growth on, on her spinal cord that blocked the transmission of nerves to her legs. And my mom was a world dervish. I mean, I was on my way to New Orleans. I don't know, for some meeting or something. And uh, they called me and said, your mom's in the hospital. I said, what? So I went to the hospital, and she was there, and she said, uh, I see they found this growth on my spine, which they're going to remove. <clears throat> she said, well, I, I just want to tell you something. Now, my mom's a pharmacist, okay, and she knows medicine. And her foreign language was, was Latin, so she knows all of the stuff about medicine and stuff like that. So she said, I, I just want to tell you something. And you make me this promise that whatever I have, I want to know. My body, my life, if I've got cancer, 
Whatever I had, I said, hey, you will know everything. It is your body and it's your decision. And you have to decide and, you know, perfectly uh, able intellectually. She said, but I can't walk. It's weird. She said, I tried to step out of the bed and I just fell down. So I said, okay, you know. Well, she didn't have cancer. But I said, you need to go to therapy. You need to go to rehab. She said, I'm doing all those exercises. <laughs> how, how old was she at that time? My mom lived to be the, the same age I am now. She lived to be 87. Okay. My dad died. He was only 73. But anyway, she wouldn't do the exercises. I don't know it would have made a difference. She said, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. But she started to get Parkinson's. Guess what she did? She called Joe Labatt, Mike Labatt, uh, friends of ours, who's a doctor in New Orleans. He said, Lucille, you have Parkinson's. She said, are you crazy? We don't have that in our family. <laughs> we don't have, I don't have Parkinson's. <laughs> he said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> so he said, you know, tell you. I said, look. If she wants to tell you that, let her tell you that. She knows what she's got. She's just so proud. And uh, Constance Baker Motley, who was Thurgood Marshall's only female superb lawyer who's had nine cases before the Supreme Court, used to come down here all the time to try the cases in the uh, Fifth Circuit Court. Connie Motley was from one of the Caribbean islands, a fabulous woman. She was the one who represented James Merritt at the University of Mississippi. And we got to be friends, and she loved my mom. So she'd come down, and she, she was being honored by the president of Tulane University when my mom was still alive. And she said, uh, Lucille, you coming with me to this dinner? My mom said, look, my hand is shaking. You think I'm going to sit at a dais and can't get the food to my mom? <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassed myself by this. Yeah, I'm not doing that. She said, you come to my house, we have a few drinks. You're about to go about your business there. But, uh, now you got to tell, tell us how you met Faye. You well, met? Faye went to Xavier. Oh, okay. Then. But we didn't date at Xavier. I tried to date her at Xavier, and uh, she had a sister at Xavier. She had two sisters at Xavier, but Jerry, who was a year old, two years older than she was, you, you, you don't want to go with that crowd. They're too fast. <laughs> we weren't fast. We were just active. You know what I mean? I was doing this and that. And I said to Faye, you should have gone with me and found out. Well, so we had a date, and then she called, and she canceled the date. Now, guess who I was, guess who I was really dating? Uh-oh. Do you know? I have no, no clue. Perry Franklin's wife, oh. Barbara. <laughs> I dated Barbara in high school and college. No, Percy. Percy's wife. Percy's wife, okay then. Percy, not Perry, Percy's wife. She was at the party the other night. That's so but this was when you was at Xavier? Now, now what, was her, what was her last name? Charbonnet. Charbonnet, oh, okay. She's, she's Charbonnet. I thought Charbonnet's from New Orleans, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah okay, the Charbonnet's from now, New Orleans. So now, what what do things look like for at eighty seven years old? Yeah. What what do life? What do your future look like? What what are you most proud of? What do you how? What is your, what is the AP two road junior legacy? Uh, my my legacy is enjoying every day that I can, and having a wonderful time. I don't have to work anymore. I can spend my time being with people, going places, sharing my story, learning from other people. Life to me is a, is a constantly ever-changing, everything changes all the time, but having adventures and learning and sharing and friends and all of that, that that's what my life is about. Whether people want, I mean, I'm not here to be an icon. 
for everybody. I'm here to have a, a good time in my life. <laughs> and, and, and have friends and enjoy everything I can. You know, that's, that's what I, I enjoy doing. So you, you, your, this life is for you. You want to make the best of it while you're Absolutely. And, and have friends to do it with. But you know, life is too short to be unhappy, man. And you know what? You got to make. You got to make. I'm not a person who's going to sit around and just sit around and sit around. I like to make things happen. Things that you can enjoy and remember. Yeah. And I want. I want my grandchildren to know my story and to celebrate it. And I have things. Look, I have stuff that I've been collecting for from my dad's office. I used to go through my dad's office. I'd say, you need this book? Oh, no, you can have it. I have collections of first editions and things that my, my dad helped publish the Laysanel's poets. You probably never heard of them, right? No. The Laysanel poets. See, my, my dad was a historian. The Laysanel's poets were men who lived during, before the Civil War in Louisiana, and they were well-educated. Many of them were the products of white men and black women, and many of them were educated in Europe. And six or seven or eight of them wrote love poems in French and published them. And the books, there were only four books that survived that era, and they've it been sold for thirty and $40,000. And some, the books in those days were not bound. They were put in a box and tied with a ribbon. And the Horace Historic New Orleans Collection has one. I have the manuscripts from some of those. And my father and a guy who was his classmate at Howard University, who taught at, at, at Hampton, Red Coleman, during World War II, published these books in an in a anthology called Creole Voices. And I have their collection, their book that they, whatever, because it was done in French but I could never find the manuscripts. And my mom said to me before she died, she said, I want you to find the manuscripts from Les Sennels, all written out in hand and fancy curly uh, script and stuff. She said, your father might have put them at Howard for safekeeping in the Moreland Spingarn collection, which is the oldest archive, black archive in the country. So I said, oh crap, I gotta go looking for stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna find it. So I made the promise and or would you have said, now, I wish I'd have followed in my daddy's footsteps as an attorney? No. Okay. No. Because it wasn't, look, I don't know what your dad did, and I don't know how you have shaped your life, because there are things that we have, we may not always know which path to choose, because a lot of things are circumstantial. Things occur to you, people approach you, people like you for one reason or another, and or you have friends, or you have someone else that you, I mean, I had great, I had some great teachers mm -hmm. that I admired. It's not always going to be family or, or your parents, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think parents, parents that impose upon their children to pursue a certain interest. I think that's, I don't think that's a good thing. And I, I have known some friends whose parents tried to do that, and it, it was harmful. It hurt their relationship, and it wasn't necessary to do that. You've got to evolve into what you want to do. 
But I do find that I, I have many of the same tendencies to, be, to want to be helpful and to contribute. And, uh, and, and not in a, a Pollyanna way. I mean, you know, you don't go around saying, oh, you know, I'm such a great guy. <laughs> oh, my, my dad's such a great guy. He was an interesting man. My mother was an interesting woman. They allowed all six of us to do what we wanted to do. And I think you have to do that. I mean, you, you prepare your children and help them the best you can to make good decisions and to be good people. I mean, all of the stuff is coming out. And I said yesterday at the conference to people, I said, you know, we're at a point in time where black people can write the real history of our culture and this country. And it needs to be incorporated into, now we're fighting, they don't want you to know black history. They don't want you to teach black history. We're not stopping. I mean, how, no. how are they going to tell who what to teach? But that's been our, yeah. at one time they had control over that. Yeah. Now them days are gone. Right. With technology right. now, right. with the access to right. so much more. So I said, you know, now we're going to get the real history. Look, my two, the white chicks, Allison and Corinne, Alice is fabulous, a beautiful woman. And uh, I said to her, we were having a meeting. We, we meet like once a month on Zoom, and we're planning this new reunion in 2024. Uh, and uh, I said to her, oh my goodness, I said, I feel so bad today. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Emmett Till's death. And she said, who was Emmett Till? I said, you know what, Alice, if I didn't know enough about you and your experience, I wouldn't have been able to respond this way. I have to realize, white papers never carried those stories. You all never heard of the things that were happening to us. She said, I never heard of him before. And when I told her the story, she started crying. She, she said, never heard of this story. No. And I said, you know what, I, we forget. We forget how controlled things were for white people, too. You don't know half of the history of your country. She said, look, we heard about slavery, and I know all about that, but she said, a lot of these other incidents of that happened like that. These iconic things that all black people know, we don't know. So, so that, tells, that tells me something, too, is that it's hard for people to have compassion for people if they don't know what's don't happening, know what what's happened happening. in the past. Now, behind the main Middleton Library, where the name was taken down during the pandemic, is the Hill Library. Hill Memorial. Hill Memorial. Well, some black students two weeks ago when I was but this stuff doesn't stop. I was here two weeks ago. A group of students called me three months ago. I was in Florida or something, or at home, I don't know. And very bright young woman named Alexandra Henderson. Alexandra. Alexandra, not Alexandra. Alexandra Henderson <laughs> from Baton Rouge or whatever. And she said, I'm a law student and I'm president of the Black Student Union. I'm an undergraduate. I'm graduating in June. And we want you to come speak to us and tell us your story. And I said, you know, I would be delighted to do that because you're young people. You are the people we want to pass our legacies on to. Not just me, but ours. 
my friends my at LSU, the people who started the chapter, the people who are doing things, and all the people who have all these jobs like that, Joyce Jackson and others who have elevated themselves inside the structure of the university. And I'm so glad that you all have stepped forward because I know you know many of them, so many of them. Do you know Carolyn Collins? You know, Carolyn, I mean, so anyway, so I said, this is great. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're not going to do a Zoom. I'm coming down. And, uh, and that's when my granddaughter said, Grandpa, if you're going to be in New Orleans, I want to go there. I want to go. And so I had my granddaughter join us, and she went to this meeting with us. She talked to the students, and she cried. She said, I have an identity problem. People don't know I'm black. People don't know See, my, she fight another kind of my, my culture, and I hear horrible things, and I have to make decisions sometimes about when I inform people of their bad behavior or when I don't. And I said, that's your privilege. I, so I said to my granddaughter, do you think, but I said, every day when I go to the gym, I'm the only black person in the locker room. Now, I, I don't have close friends at the gym, but these people, I've been going there for 12 years, 15 years, I hear all, all kinds of things. Do you think I'm going to start arguing with these guys every time they open their filthy mouths about race? When, when Obama was president, I, I, I wonder what's happening at the nigger show at the White House today. Now these are rich, white, young men in their 40s, 50s, whatever, who have had the best of everything, been to the best schools and they're still spouting that kind of junk. So I said to Amanda, I have to know when I'm gonna pick my fights. And you have to know so as well too. So she said, Grandpa, it's just hard because I wanna do the right thing. I said, you do, whatever you do is right, you do it for you. But doing the right thing is you gotta protect yourself. Yes, you have to protect yourself. And you know when you can say something and when you don't. Some people just pure the ignorant. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also, your challenging them may not have any impact on their outlook. I just said, you casting your pearl before it's trying. Man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast.